Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, flow, freedom, agorism, anarchy, and more. Our mission is to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. I'm your host, Mike the Polymath Whistler, coming from the Easy Peasy Shop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. We got Ashwin, my main man from across the pond in the house on the Easy Peasy podcast. Finally, welcome to the show, brother. Finally, thank you. Thank you very much. Long time in the making this, but I must say I'm very happy to be here. And, you know, I think to an extent, some of this, the inspiration behind Easy Peasy, I was I was privy to that, the podcast. And, you know, we had a couple of live sessions on Instagram and of course, just our one-to-one conversations, uh, private conversations. So I'm really happy that this has become a thing and that you found a platform to sort of put yourself out there and whatever you have to share. So very happy to contribute to that and be here today. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about last summer we did like one or two Instagram lives, two of them. Yeah. I thought it was two. Um, and that was like during the craziness of all the riots and everything. And, you know, that was like a worldwide phenomenon. Right. And, uh, we were both kind of just in, you know, we were interested in making sense of the whole thing and talking about it in like a public way. And I really appreciated because I had kind of like gone into this, this frenzy of social media posting and like doing Instagram, which I was not really privy to much um, just because of the fact that I was kind of in the middle of all the, you know, protests and riots and stuff and like kind of bore witness to it. And, um, felt the need to like share my point of view and what I saw and all that. And, you know, it's like, obviously that was a bit, a bit of a powder keg last summer. And it's funny. I almost think people have like chosen to just like forget about all that almost <laughs> in certain ways. Um, like we don't talk about the riots much except maybe we talk about like January 6th and all this, you know, I guess I'm just like laying a bit of context here in that, like you and I, whenever we talk, it's always about like, what the hell's going on? Like, why is it going on? Um, How should we feel about it? What should we, what should we believe? And we both, you know, try to be like open-minded, I believe, you know, all that said, I feel like we should get like a full-blown introduction of who Ashwin is and I 
I had the pleasure of getting to know you in college. We had a lot of fun together, ended up being roommates. Like, you know, we got to know each other on the dorm floor, had a ball of a time through college. But even back then we were like, we were having real talk. Um, so anyways, tell us who you are, where you're from, where you're at now, you know, give us background on your education if you could, and a little bit about your sort of professional life. Sure, sure. So yeah, I mean, that, that's a walk down memory lane, isn't it? Um, all those <laughs> all those years ago in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very happy that, you know, through coincidence, um, that's how things worked out. And I got to know you and some of the other boys on the floor that I ended up making really good friends with. And I'm still in touch with most of them, if not all actually from the core group. But yeah, yeah I came to the US as, um, as a kid back then. And I'm, I'm from India originally, born and raised. And I was thrown into the deep end right away. And uh, you guys became my support system and, and really helped me throughout those four years as I explored and developed. After spending four years in Indiana, I moved to Washington, where I worked for another four years, working with the federal government on different sorts of projects, uh, State Department and Defense Department. Um, and that was a wild ride. Uh, great, great experience. Lots of exposure, lots of learning, lots of mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and key lessons to, to draw from, not just from, for professional life, but for personal life and really give me direction. I was uh, quite a different person back then to who I am today, or at least I'd like to think so. And, mm-hmm. you know, having left Washington, I decided I need a fresh start because of a number of reasons, chiefly amongst which was my mental health. And I was diagnosed with PTSD that took me a while to, to get through. And I'm, I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, I'm still not completely out of the woods yet, but that's a journey and I'm, I'm very comfortable where I am today. So that's, that's a blessing in disguise, but I thought of change of scenery, a change of pace, um, and perhaps a change of culture would be helpful. And I decided to pursue education further. And that's how I found myself in the United Kingdom. Not, not that drastic of a change uh, in terms of culture, but you'd be surprised, you know, um, the nuances do vary and the people of course vary. So our interactions are mostly with people and not with 10,000 foot culture that we like to uh, throw the term around. So it was a very, very good transition for me. And um, on a personal front too, I, I made some relationships that have stood the test of time and I found someone who is probably going to be with me for the rest of my life. So mm-hmm. someone who grounds me, someone who humbles me and someone at the same time who I can learn from. So that's a quick down low on who, who I am. Um, currently I'm in India. Um, mm-hmm. Things are good here before the listeners start worrying about that. <laughs> um, and I'll be moving to Thailand very soon where things are not as good. <laughs> so sure. Uh, I'm sure things will get better though over there as well but very excited for my next chapter in Thailand. And hopefully Michael, you get to visit me there. Yeah. Well, I sure hope so. I actually looked at like flights, you know, and I can do it round trip for about a thousand bucks, which sounds pretty doable, you know, so not, uh, bad. not terrible. Uh, we'll see what happens there, but yeah, I guess uh, if we can backpedal just a hair, like I know that you studied, it was policy analysis. Is that correct? A lot of people tend to remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was your undergrad. And then, you know, just kind of like, um, ex, you know, explaining your story a little deeper, just if we can. Um, after your undergrad, like you said, you went to D.C. And 
you were basically a contractor. Is that right? Like, did you officially work for the U.S. government or were you freelance? How did, how does that work? Yeah, so there's there's different ways of of you know managing that, and and it works differently across different departments, different scopes of projects. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised in in, in finding out that there's if the U.S. government wants some work to be done, they'll find a way to engage with you and mm-hmm. and get that work done. So most of my work was pretty much all of my work actually was contractual work, which meant I was hired for the duration of a project and for the scope of the project. So if we met our goal beforehand, then the prescribed time, then then that was it, you know? And I was not directly employed by them. I was working for a nonprofit that I had helped start up. Um, mm-hmm. And as a part of that nonprofit, most of my work was done contractually with the, with the federal government. Can you explain kind of what the scope of the work was or what kind sure. of so- what kind of stuff? Sure. So I'll probably talk more about State Department work than Defense Department work for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of the State Department, when I joined, President Obama was still in office. And if you remember, uh, he had a policy of looking east and focusing on countries like India, which is, of course, where I'm from. And mm-hmm. in terms of expertise, our organization enjoyed a lot of contacts, a lot of connections in India to get stuff done. And we were fresh and young in the market. Most of the players who were working with the State Department in India were organizations that had been established for a long period of time, not too many of them, which meant their ideas were a bit obsolete because they had no incentive to innovate. And here we were, a a small organization, just one person on payroll, which was me, Hmm. and, and showing to them that, look, these are the amount of things we can do with the money that you're offering us. And additionally, if you get rid of some of these redundant regulations that you have in place right now, then we can do even more. So we were giving them more value per dollar because a dollar in a country like India means a lot of money. So, you know, we may be doing a small project for $30,000, which is is nothing Mm -hmm. for the government. But if we can extract more value out of whatever work we were doing in India, why not? So oh, and you're, some, I imagine, so you're, you're fostering business connections between the U S and India. Is that essentially what you're precisely, precisely. Was? So yeah. One of the, one of the projects we did was an education related project where hmm. the U S government found that the Northeast of India from there, traditionally students coming to the U S have been disproportionately low for higher education. You got people coming from Delhi, from Chennai, from Bombay, these are heard of places in the U.S., but places like Assam, Manipur, which are in the northeast of India, uh, which, is, which is the left arm of India, if you will, if you're trying to imagine that visually. <laughs> yeah, and there's a yeah. few states tucked in there, uh, tough terrain, uh, not as developed. And from there, not a lot of students coming to the U.S. for higher education. Why is that? Hmm. Let's try and solve that. Let's try. We have a network of Indian Americans and Indians in the U.S., Let's provide these kids with the support and resources they need through partnerships, through information, and bring them here. So that was one of the projects we worked on. Equally, we built relationships between people who were, um, you know, in the startup ecosphere in India. And Mm -hmm. we brought, you know, a, a network of mentors with us from the U.S. And we held discussions between them that led to funding, you know, being sorted out amongst themselves, 
uh, lots of mentoring happening. And the idea was to just create values and connections through our connections. And are you, are you able to share the name of that organization? Is that sure? Sure. Yeah. yeah. This was called the Indo-American center. It was Mm -hmm. based in Washington. It still is. Uh, there's another Indo-American Center, which is in Chicago. Uh, however, that's a more of a cultural organization, and they focus on performing arts and uh, they fo- focus more on donations. And I'm sure they did a lot of work during the vaccination period where things were bad during COVID. And that is more dedicated to that side. Uh, the organization I worked for was a straight-up conservative political think tank. Okay. Okay. And. Uh... I mean, it sounds like you can't talk about it in detail, but you worked for the defense department as well. Like, how did that, were you recruited somehow? How did that happen? No, I was never recruited for any of these projects. Uh, We simply found value where, uh, or I should say more scope for value in existing areas of work. So grants.gov, which is the US federal government's central website, that has all these different contracts and projects being released was sort of my uh, first web page of the day. And I would scour through it to see what's available. And interestingly enough, a defense department grant had opened up and uh, it, was, uh, it was a doozy. It was a big project. I was surprised to find it on there, but I suppose I shouldn't have been because President Trump was in office at that time and things had opened up you know, existing players in the market did not enjoy that level of access and that level of autonomy while applying for these grants anymore. And there was more competition in the market. So based on the time I had spent in Washington, the connections I had made, uh, the organization had made, and equally the relationship we had with the White House at that time because of the work we did at the State Department, because of the money we had saved at the State Department, uh, got us some brownie points. Of course, it, it still meant we had to provide with, you know, provide a solid scope of work, solid planning, uh, no, no area for, for mistakes. So we had to go through the gauntlet. We still had to go through that. But having that level of access, having that level of comfort with the sitting president, with the sitting organization, uh, administration, uh, did, did help us to at least get a seat at the table. Well, it's fascinating to me just because I know you on a personal level and we're just like pals, right? We're like, you and I were good, good buds. Like the fact that you kind of like rapidly maneuvered in DC blows my mind. And it sounds like you were involved in some sort of higher level kind of, you know, I mean, just from my like novice you know layman's point of view it's like you were in the shit man like you were in the midst of it i mean i hesitate to ask this we know we can always edit things out if we need to but you mentioned something about your ptsd like did that have something to do with the work or the the was it i don't know i i don't even know how to ask that question but it was, it was perpetuated by my engagement with the Department of Defense. And ironically enough, I didn't even know I was suffering through PTSD, you know, despite mm-hmm. having w- watched stuff on it. Uh, you know, maybe we watched movies together, you mm-hmm. know, during school where uh, we had soldiers shown on, on screen that were suffering. Um, I'm sure PTSD, we watched but... 
I'm sure we watched Forrest Gump at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lieutenant 100%, Dan, yeah. You know, Lieutenant Dan was a good example. Yeah. Yeah. So many of those films, right? Hurt mm-hmm. Locker, um, mm-hmm. Lone Ranger, they all have some element uh, either addressed or demonstrated um, in real time. And I mean, defense is a, is a particularly different beast to deal with, not just politically, but even internally, because life is very quick it life comes at you fast but at the same time you're quite a bit on standby you know you're not always doing stuff right but you've got to be prepared for it mm-hmm. so it takes a different level of stam a different combination of stamina and sprinting speed agility to be able to work in that environment and then you add the political element so uh compliance um being able to answer and address what you've done, why you've done it, why this way, why not this way? Why with this much stuff and not this much stuff? Why didn't you involve allies? You know, why didn't you use this facility instead of this facility? You have all these questions, excuse me, that pepper the conversation and that you got to maneuver. I, I suppose the reason I got lucky in my work was because I, no, and I just surrounded myself with people who I felt would be able to guide me best. And that meant I was being pulled from a lot of directions. And that meant I had even less time on my hands. So I was actually diagnosed with PTSD on my way out. Although I had started exhibiting symptoms a few months before that, mm. but an official diagnosis only followed after I left the department of defense. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I, you know, I don't think we really need to like, go into the nitty gritty. Um, I'm sure you just probably shouldn't, can't, uh, as far as the type of work that you were doing there or what have you, we'll just kind of leave it vague. You know, it's, I I almost wonder if listeners at this point are sitting here thinking, I don't understand anything that this guy is talking about. You know, I I, apologize for that, (laughs) you know, but it's like, we're doing our best to give you sort of a, a, a a vague resume here. Right. Like, Mm -hmm kind of get your the context of your your perspective right you grew up in india you came to school in indiana you worked in dc you know sort of initially in the economic sphere and then eventually in the defense sphere so that is the generalized plot right and then like you said you you kind of extracted yourself from that world, right? And you went back into school. So what was your postgraduate work? So I went for an MBA. I I realized working in Washington that speed matters to me. Hmm. You know, the speed of execution matters to me. And what I don't want is to be hindered by obstacles that have nothing to do with my work. And I realized that business was the way to go for me, creating value through social enterprise, creating value through uh, long-term sustainable value uh, in whichever industry I find myself in. Because at that time, I didn't have a vision for what I wanted to do on my own. But I realized that I can bring that vision to other organizations. And as long as my value system fits into that organization, I will Mm. be happy. Yeah. You know, and I think that the pandemic in some ways has helped with that. You know, of course, uh, there are many examples for, for organizations that are focused on the short term, but you can find organizations even today 
that have put themselves on a path towards long-term sustainability, whether it's in terms of innovation, whether it's in terms of dealing with people, whether it's in terms of how they, uh, how they deal with partners and clients. There is that focus that is now being inculcated in a lot of industries. And that's sort of what I wanted when I went for, for B-School. And it was a tremendous experience you know, to, to apply what I had learned, to compound what I had learned with new information and to, you know, it's education is a strange thing. It opens these neural corridors in your head that are already there, but they just weren't open yet. So they tell you more about yourself than they tell you about the world. And, you know, you accept and reject ideas coming your way or ways of thinking coming your way. So it's, in a way, it's deepening what you know about yourself. And it's more of a personal journey than it is an academic journey. At least that's what my experience was. Well, mine too. I think, yeah, you were witness to my sort of, um, what's the word, uh, unconventional choice of education. You know, it's amazing. IU being a fairly like conventional university, um, you know, in the Midwest of all places, it was very weird that we had this outdoor recreation program. And it obviously appealed to me because golly, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to play outside. So yeah, I'll study outdoor recreation. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've said it before on the podcast for, for new listeners, it was not just playing outside. It was outdoor rec parks and human ecology. And I got ever more interested in that human ecology stuff as my educational experience went along. And, you know, I've said, I'll probably never go back to school, but at the same time, uh, I enjoyed it and I actually wouldn't mind going back to school at a, at a more advanced age, you know, after maybe becoming a successful business person and, you know, yeah, continue to pursue my sort of interests in that way. Um, but there's also, it seems like a lot of issues with the universities these days and, you know, I don't know if it's going to get any better. So I, I kind of took the route of after my undergrad, I, I went the route of an apprenticeship, so to speak. You know, I, first I interned with the park service, then I became an apprentice. You, know, you were talking a bit about sort of setting up mentorships and it's like, these are these kind of long-term ways of, of improving society, right? Education, mentorship, you know, and we had kind of discussed, you and I caught up a little bit last week and we're discussing sort of what we might talk about on the show. And I do like this idea of sort of playing the long game, you know, like it's golf, it's not putt putt when it comes to sort of global issues. And that's, that's why I started the business. I started doing backyard vegetable gardening, because to me, that's a very tangible way of having a, a real impact on the environment and on the food system sort of one household at a time. And, you know, I've become a believer in top or I'm sorry, bottom up solutions, right? Grassroots, you know, you kind of worked at that like top level government uh, where it's very much top down decision-making and you and I often will have like differing points of view, differing opinions. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's cool. Cause it's like, I, I fully want to know why you think what you think and, and, and what you think half the time I'm like, God damn, I really would like to know what Ashwin thinks about this or that because you clearly like 
I have so much negative bias towards that whole world, you know, Washington, mm-hmm. DC, but having a friend who actually worked there, um, it's, it's allowed me to sort of take, take my emotion out of it and just see things through your eyes, you know, as objectively as I can. So I guess one question I would ask you, it's a big question, but like, how much faith do you have in government after sort of being in the belly of the beast? Oh, that's, it's such a loaded question. Um, Instead of contextualizing it, uh, I think a better approach would be to theoretically and philosophically approach it. Essentially, the question is between order and chaos. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, That's Mm -hmm. the crux of the question. And look, there's, uh, there's, pros and cons to both you know Order. what i gotta say this sounds like a perfect time to light a doobie <laughs> i hope i'm not gonna get you in trouble you know you know i'm not at all I, i'm only, not giving you company anyway so i, I only represent myself here y'all <laughs> <laughs> but now we're talking order and chaos so let's go right so i mean order is more about structure it's more about predictability it's more about keeping things in control, while chaos is about creativity, about being able to deal with uncertainty. And Mm. I've intentionally only laid out the positives because that's what I want to focus on. And there has to be a balance, right? What what I've learned working in in Washington and and spending time with you guys and just exploring different things in life is, is that leadership has to come from somewhere. And bottom-up leadership hasn't existed. The, the systems we have in place, the society what do you, we what do you call What do you call Gandhi? I mean, I know that was a while ago. Are you saying like today that doesn't exist? But The systems under which we live, when there is a person coming up through the ranks, they come up through the ranks. They reach a pedestal in order hmm. to then exert their full influence. Hmm. Right? So... The, the way the order works in our world is that you have to rise in order to get scale. Sure. I see what you mean. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and I'm trying to th- do right here, right now with this podcast, right. Trying to, trying to rise up. Right. Is essentially, right. You spread your ideas and you do that through, through hierarchies, right. That's just the, the way the world works. It's the system mm-hmm. under which we operate. We can argue whether that's a good thing or a bad, that's a whole different conversation, but the as is, is that of course, ideas generate in individuals, which is the bottom, but in order to then mobilize them and scale them, you have to sort of build up, right? And, and get into positions of influence and power. But individually ideas don't spread very easily. That's why social media is very interesting, by the way, because there is this democratic approach to social media where you can pick up on ideas without having to actually raise someone to a pedestal. And that's a whole different world, again, which we can talk about. Well, leadership to me, I was just going to say that I've heard a quote about like the only thing stronger than the armies of the world is an idea whose time has come, which I like that quote because I like certain ideas that have come out in recent time. I don't mean to cut you off, but um, it's like you said something about it has to almost be channeled through a hierarchy. It's like. Does it though? I don't know. Like I, I've come to wonder if there's sort of a distinct difference between a hierarchy and a network and that like things 
operate better in a network than a hierarchy, generally speaking. That's become sort of a, a half-held belief. I'm I'm teasing out that idea. But I, I wouldn't disagree with that. It, it's just that the network effect that you're talking about is mm-hmm. is now making a place for itself. And it is battling the status quo, which is the hierarchical approach. Right. 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 I'm not I'm not advocating for either. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, I'm just laying out why I believe in 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 the approach ideology that that I do. So, coming back to what I was saying, leadership for me is not about affecting performance. It's about affecting the structure within which performance occurs. So it's about putting a system in place that al- allows performance to flourish. And within that, then you build from the bottom up. You empower those at the bottom where the genuine creativity, innovation exists, where there's more competition because there's more players. Okay. And then you allow them by giving them a, a platform to be able to influence. So my, my, my approach ideology is a bit, is, is what I like to think as balanced that the top sets the game. It sets the structure, Right. And it's, it's, it is decentralized to quite an extent, but then the approach from the bottom ought to be global. You know, that's, that's a new buzzword that's come about in the last three, four years. Right. Right. So you allow people at the bottom, you don't disenfranchise them. You don't, you don't make the game so skewed that for them to be able to grow and scale and spread their ideas becomes a David versus Goliath game. But I do believe that you need that someone at the top. So, yeah, I mean, that is where we tend to have our rub is right. Like I, I kind of hold this almost ideal, you know, that people tend to refer to as, uh, I, you know, some call it libertarianism, some call it voluntarism, some call it anarchy. You know, it's really all just the idea that basically centralized control is always bad, you know, like in an, in a nutshell, um, particularly when it gets to the point of being an involuntary sort of um, assertion on, on the people. Right. I suppose they're, you know, I'm not going to go too far down that, that hole right now, but I'm, I'm getting at that is generally where we see differently is, you know, you believe in the need for that, for that structural, um, I I suppose that structure, right. Yeah. Structure. And I am of the opinion that, it's not doing us any favors at this point. You know, I, 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 I struggle with my own ideas. That's where we tend to see eye to eye in that sort of ideas are one thing and reality is another, right? Like we're both realists, hmm. I believe. <laughs> and yeah. Hang on. Um, it's like why I'm not going to ever be the guy to like try to overthrow any kind of government. You know, it's like, that's, that's kind of against in my mind, the idea to begin with, like, the idea of non-aggression, how can I overthrow something without being aggressive? Well, one way to do it would be to share the ideas of non-aggression uh, instead of aggressively asserting my ideas, right? Um, I'm, a, I'm on a tangent here, but it's just interesting to note because you, you think of yourself as a bit of a libertarian, right? Like we've talked a lot about libertarian ideas, um, right? Yeah, you know, so you might be more of what some would refer to as like a minarchist potentially, or 
I don't know, there, there's, there's varying degrees, right. Of right. sort of what the ideal might be. Um, you know, I was listening to this Jordan Peterson it was just, I think his podcast from yesterday and they were talking all about sex and, um, and dating apps. And this guy, I forget his name, but the guest his his whole premise is that like, we have these luxury ideas in, in modern culture that are basically ideas that are only possible from a, from a place of privilege. Like, you know, this, this idea, you know, they were kind of arguing that sexual promiscuity, like polyamory, like generally these are probably bad things for society. They're kind of like drawing connections with, you know, the rise in single motherhood and sort of like lack of accountability for men in terms of child rearing. And, you know, they're hitting it from all angles and it's a very touchy kind of taboo subject to say that, you know, perhaps like, traditional family values are in many ways, like the best long-term thing for society. And, um, this concept of luxury ideas, right? Like these ideas that we can let ourselves play around with because of the position that we're in, you know, I wonder if my idea of anarchism is not even maybe a luxury idea saying we don't need government, you know, it's all fucked, like get rid of it. But I think perhaps the difference, I'll be interested to get your response. I know I'm talking a lot here, but I think the difference between a true luxury idea and sort of a pragmatic uh, philosophy, which I actually do believe anarchism is like a pragmatic way of thinking in that it's fully like, personal responsibility over like over being dependent on the system right so i i view it as a pragmatic thing as an individual to think this way but i see the argument at the same time from a point of view like yours it's like i have a hard time believing my own ideas fully because the balance of order and chaos is a tenuous thing and finding the right balance is going to be tricky. You know, I just don't like the way things are. So God, I just said a lot of things there. I wonder what's going on in that brain of yours, man. It's, it's interesting. Some of the, the dichotomies that you put in front of me, uh, they're very binary, uh, which coming from a realist is, is a bit surprising. I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is that just because you're a part of the system doesn't mean you are taking from the system, right? That doesn't mean you're a burden on the system. So it's, it, it, it's, it's not mutually exclusive, those things, right? Uh, so for example, if, if you do want to put me in a bucket of a libertarian, I, I do want that system to be in put place, but with fewer restrictions, right? and with a lot more autonomy built in them. I, will, I always thought of myself as perhaps closer to you in ideology, but working in Washington made me realize, and especially the 2016 election and, and the fallout, if that's what you wanna call it, is that the social fabric of society dictates a lot of the other facets, whether it's economic, right? Whether it's healthcare related, 
whether it's family related. The social fabric, the social unity in ideas and beliefs is extremely important to dictate belief in or rebellion against the rest of the stuff going on in the background. And that without unity has to be created from somewhere. It has to be professed from somewhere, whether for good or for bad. And that's what I look up to for leaders. I mean, if you look across organizations uh, and of course, businesses and corporate organizations are a whole different animal to, to government. But a lot of the people on the top don't end up doing a lot of the work, but they set the style, they set the tone, they, they set the values in place, right? They set the vision and the execution is then left up to the other people. I mean, Steve Jobs famously just went and gave an idea on paper for an iPhone and left it up to his engineers. If it wasn't for that ecosystem, that global ecosystem of engineers and designers and manufacturers and suppliers, that idea would have never come to fruition. And of course, do not forget the LSD. That also helped. Right? Sure. sure. Um, so, 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 I mean, even the whole political spectrum ideology, right? Are you right-leaning, left-leaning? I mean, even I find that two-dimensional spectrum so old and completely obsolete because with the access to information that we have and the, and the pace at which we have information, you could easily find yourself, or at least I, I have found this to be true, that I'm very libertarian on one thing, but completely the opposite, you know, almost a communist on something. You know, I heard um, Russell Brand describe himself in a recent video as a left-leaning libertarian anarchist. So much interesting. There's a lot in there. Um, It's to say that he has, you know, liberal values, like as we maybe understand them today. Again, I think these words have become so sort of convoluted. Um, Mm. What do they even mean? They mean different things to whoever you ask, right? And it is. And on the context, right? I mean, liberal in the US may mean one thing, and in China may mean completely, you know, a very muted version of that. Well, I had a conversation a couple nights ago with some, a fellow going by Dr. Green Dust. He's been on the podcast twice now. He's my, he's my pot guy. He's a good buddy. And he, um, we were talking about how basically, goddamn, goddamn, speaking of pot, what were we talking about? <laughs> Dr. Green Dust. We came to Dr. Green Dust from Russell Brand's connotation of his identity. Well, you were talking about just, yeah, the, the obsoleteness of, of sort of the words. That's what it was, sort of the wordplay of everything. Like, this mm-hmm. is all just these words. Like, we're getting a little bit stony here, but the wordplay of, like, the legal system particularly was what we were discussing and how, how there are ways to defend yourself in the legal system by sort of falling back on on old law right maritime law making a case that there is no jurisdiction in this in this case to begin with despite all this other litigation and you know legislation that you can cite from recent years let's go back to you know the treaty of of 1812 or whatever it's like you can make these arguments and it's all about it's just words it's wordplay but you're making a logical argument like it's not frivolous but it's open to interpretation and there's important like concepts at play right 
that's why there's so much discussion and um, debate right now about like libertarianism versus like authoritarianism at a at a binary level. And it is we have no choice, I think, to talk in binary terms, even though usually the the solution is is a compromise someplace in the middle. Um, like the world is gray, despite the language being black and white, you could say. And, uh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, we shouldn't let ourselves get all, all butthurt about words when people are doing their best to basically explain thoughts that are really pretty complex. Uh, you know, and it's like, in terms of this idea of sort of the long game versus the short game, it's why I'm so vehemently anti-authoritarian because I think that's the short game. I think that's mm -hmm. like, let's slap band-aids on everything and hope it holds up. That's sticking fingers in the cracks of the dam, knowing that if you don't, you know, if you don't address the, the problem, the central like core issue, the problem is just going to keep getting worse. So my issue is just from everything I've seen, I feel like I can't help but think that authoritarians are the problem. And I, I, I have very little evidence that people who are not authoritarians ever become like influential in government. I think they can become influential often in other ways, but it's like, I only know of two people in Congress you know, Thomas Massey and Rand Paul are like the only two guys that seem to be sort of standing on principle over, over like preference right now, mm -hmm. you know, sort of like long game versus short game. They're the only ones that are saying, Hey, like we really need to look at our own constitution and be very careful about how we proceed. Everybody else just seems to want to just like do whatever's politically convenient. So how am I supposed to have faith in a system where you know, two out of what, like 400 something like total uh, legislators between the House and the Senate, like that's a very skewed factor in my mind. I have a hard time putting faith in the system when it seems like the system is the is the source of many of the problems, right? Yeah, you're not. I mean, the frank answer is that you're not supposed to put, a, put your faith in a system that that is pr producing results. Um that are inconsistent well, when looked across and, and where, where the system is being dictated by the players within the system, right? So you're, you're not supposed to, I mean, I suppose that's why I took the discussion to a thematic level as opposed to a contextualized US level, because, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk thematically, you can transpose that theory onto different countries, different cultures. And I think on balance, what I have noticed uh, based on living across four continents, for example, is, is that the system is more powerful and a better safety net than, than being in chaos. The, the U.S. is a very, very interesting case study, though, because mm -hmm. the, the variance is not very large. You know, we haven't seen a true dictator or, a, or an authoritarian you know, the, the, the spectrum is, is minimized. You know, if you look across Asia, for example, or, or even in South America, we've seen dictators that have really flexed their area of, of, of influence and, and mm -hmm. done things, which 
I cannot possibly ever imagining happening in the U.S. I mean, I was told Trump was the worst thing to ever happen, but uh, to the U.S. But you know, I I I didn't hear stories of genocide. Right? We were told that it would be as bad. Of course, you know, in a more poetic sense. It's exaggerated, though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but from a U.S. context, that maybe yes for for some people for for people who were very vocal, very very angry with this, they were affected in ways which they had never imagined before right so there is this there's this small area within which the u.s sort of just goes back and forth and i think that's another reason for people to to not have faith in the system because you know you you guys are like a shuttlecock in a game of badminton where the players aren't being changed right and, yeah, well, and you're, just, you're just going back and forth between the same thing. Five years, let's try this. Five years, let's try this. And between amongst those five years, the la- last two or three years are basically ineffective because it's midterm time or Congress yeah, is skewed. Yeah, People aren't yeah, happy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've, I've thought and heard similar sentiments of like, you know, the one good thing about our system is that like very little is done sometimes, you know, like <laughs> it's better to have like, nothing happened than something terrible. Um, mm. It's just, man, I, you know, my whole thing, like going back to the idea of glocal, right? Like I, that word sticks out to me. I, I used to be very much like a thinker in terms of, yeah, like that whole like catchphrase, right? Think local act or no, think global act local, right? That's what people say. And that's, that's a nice little catchphrase, but I found that generally speaking, catchphrases are kind of bullshit. <laughs> you know? <Fair> enough. <laughs> Anything that you boil down to that few of words and you expect it to be like a total truth, you know, it's like even the whole taxation is theft thing. That's like a huge thing in the libertarian world. And it's like, it, that's an easy chant, right? Taxation is theft. Well, you know, on a realistic level, how are we going to fund certain sort of things? Um, there's an argument there and I'm, I am of the opinion that there could be like voluntary taxation, right? Like no taxation that it could be, you know, argued basically, you know, like sales tax is a voluntary tax. You don't have to buy stuff. Yeah. You can make the you know, theoretical argument. You couldn't survive without buying stuff. Well, it's like, yeah, but you're still making every purchasing choice. This is something we talked about the other night, me and my my outlaw friends. I called that episode the American Outlaw because it's a couple of folks that are genuine outlaws, you know, making their money in the black market. And um, we're talking about sort of how <sighs> might have lost it. <laughs> lost your turn of thought, did you? Yeah, man, I got to quit smoking so much weed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just like people, um, people don't, what we were talking about, that's what it was, sales tax. And how, what if, this, this is a hypothetical, but what if there was a hefty sales tax? We're talking think global, act local, right? If we're going to actually fucking do that, here's an idea. Heavy sales tax on online purchases, zero sales tax on in-person purchases, brick and mortar facilities where you are buying things from your neighbors, 0% sales tax. 
Because you know what that does? That incentivizes local business. And that's thinking local, right? And having that sales tax on goods that need to be shipped around the world, you know, hey, maybe that's thinking globally, like, and we can channel those funds into whatever, right? Right. You know, I don't know, but that's just one hypothetical as to, but again, it's like to say taxation is theft is just as bullshit as saying like, think global, act local, even though they both sound nice to certain people. It's like, it's all more complicated than that. In my opinion, I make the argument that I'm an anarchist only because it's like, I've said it before the day. I think we need more government. I'll switch sides. Like, to me, that's not a fixed opinion. That's not a, that's not like an ultimatum. Yeah. I think uh, pretty much most of the things we're going to say today are not fixed opinions and mm. it's just where we are today. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that even this has been an evolution, right? I mean, I can probably think of conversations we had maybe eight, nine years ago, which were drastically different than what we're talking about today. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting. Again, some of the things you said, that in order to levy such a tax, it's coming from the top. And that's not what I, that's not the system that I'm advocating for. Okay. Right. The system that I advocate for is, is a structure within which if there is a, a global movement, right. It, it is given the freedom and maybe a bit of a push. If it is indeed a long-term solution, sustainable solution to grow and not be hindered by the traditional players who are very big to fail, where they don't have a lobby where they can just go and, and tap on someone's shoulder and get something signed without even them reading it. I, I, I think I'm making myself clear. I see your eyebrow twitching a bit, but- Yeah, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to understand. I mean, so, I guess one, one, maybe a thought that came to me there while you were talking was sort of, we do, I, I appreciate in the, in the States, we have these people, you know, people refer to the, the 50 States as 50 laboratories of Liberty, of varying styles of Liberty, shall we say, you know, cause we're all built on this constitution and, and each state can make its own rules. That's, I believe what the fifth amendment's all about, right? Like any powers not hereby, you know, given to the federal government are, you know, for the States. And, um, it's why I get upset with things like Biden's like mandate. I don't know how much you're aware of that, but his recent mandate saying any employer over a hundred people must follow these rules. Like I work one day a week at a place that has more than a hundred employees. And I have heard nothing in regards to this federal mandate yet, because I think it's, it's so up in the air. And part, part of it is that Indiana's attorney general and governor have both said, like, we're not going to enforce that. So like, you're going to have to send your, send your goons over here to enforce it if you want it enforced, because we're not gonna. And, uh, you know, so it's like, bravo, exactly. But that's, that doesn't negate the fact that like Joe Biden, like, decided that that was what was going to happen for the whole country. You know, that's the whole argument. Like, he, does he have any jurisdiction to do such? You know, I don't believe he does. Um, but it's like the day that I walk in and they say, Hey, like, where's your proof? I'm going to say, I don't have it. They're going to say, all right, you got to take a test. 
you know, at that moment, it's like, I don't think I want to have to take the test. And a lot of of employers don't want to incur the cost of the testing. So they're just either, they're either going to ignore the rule altogether, or they're going to maybe cheat (laughs) in some way. Or they're going to say, everybody's got to be vaccinated and end of story. We're not going to do the testing. Like that's not an option, you know, and it's sick and twisted. You know, to me, it's, it's borderline fascism for the, for the executive of the, of the federal government to say private employers have to enforce this legal edict, this, this executive order, you know, they're not law enforcement. You know, I know they're expected to uphold OSHA standards. That's why they're doing it through OSHA, but it doesn't, it doesn't really negate the fact that it's a, it's a rule that was passed without any form of due process, as far as anybody can say. So it's, it's like a big deal, that whole mandate, like that's a really big deal. Like these last couple of weeks here, I don't know how much like foreign uh, news and all that's talking. Is it a lot? It's, it's a serious, it's a serious thing to to try and mobilize, mm-hmm. you know, of course, other um, countries I mean, have like already implemented, you know, far more drastic things. So it's, I mean, that's why I'm curious what the, what the perspective is, you know, from the UK say, cause don't, don't y'all have mandates or no. Uh, well, I'm not in the UK anymore. Oh, you're so in India. I, that's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how, how things are going over there in, in this regard, but I mean, just the other day, there was news coming out of the UK that there will not be vaccine passports for nightclubs, for example. Okay. So that, okay. that plan was scrapped, uh, at least in London. I'm not sure the rest of the, the country, Yeah. but it's, it's, that's a serious mandate from, mm-hmm. from the white house to, to do something like that. And look, there, there is still, of course, a lot of skepticism about the vaccine. And I, I'd argue it's healthy skepticism. You know, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I'm double vaccinated, for example, uh, but I don't live in the U.S. And for most of our listeners, I'm sure they they saw the news, how, how bad things were in the summer in India. And at that time, it felt like the right thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. it felt like I'm not saying it was the right thing. It felt like the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a bit of placebo effect going on there as well. But there is a very healthy skepticism about this vaccine. It's been fast tracked. We don't have enough data over the years to have studied what are the side effects what are the long-term effects well not not that not even just that but like how effective is it really you know just looking at israel and all that it's very it's very hard to be convinced that it's like a, a panacea right like a cure-all because right. right. clearly things are still going wrong in israel even though they're highly highly jabbed and yeah. anyways like you know i I, I actively try to like not make this like a, a vax unvaxed show, but it is such a critical issue these days. And you know, some people might wonder like, what the hell are they talking about this shit on the easy peasy podcast anyways? Well, my <laughs> argument is like, you can't live the easy peasy life. If you're like under, you know, totalitarian rule, or if you're living in fear, or if you're like, I don't know, fill in the blank. You know, there's a reason I talk about gardening a lot too. It's like, I think that's part of having like security and, um, and peace, peace of mind is knowing where your food comes from. Right. And like having a relationship with local farms and we need to build those kind of 
you know, I think that's, I didn't quite finish the thought as to why I think, think global act local is bullshit. It's the think global part, right? Mm. To me, I think that's impractical. I don't think it's something we're even remotely capable of doing like well or effectively. I think our human brains, we might be arrogant enough to think that we can decide things for the globe. You know, clearly that's something we've done time and time again. We think we're smart enough to make these overarching decisions, but I don't think our brains are capable of realizing the potential consequences. Like it's, it's crazy how often you do something in the name of said mission and the eventual result after some time is always the opposite. It's like, because we can't see the unintended consequences when we go too far outside of our scope of sort of real world control, which is why I would like to say, think local, act local, like forget about global. I hate to be that guy, but like, let everyone figure their own shit out. You know, I got nothing to give anybody aside from the people in my immediate community, basically. I mean, that, that falls apart when you're talking about sharing ideas and like, and you know, cultural like influence and things like that. But when it comes to like everyday people and like how much energy we put into global issues that we have no sway over when you know, I think it's just bad psychology to tell people, think global, think global. It's like, nah, we all need to think local, like end of story. So, I mean, that's just to wrap that fucking idea up there, but it's part of my anarchism and like total like commitment to the idea of decentralization is like, maybe we do need some form of like centralized leadership, but I think centralized decision-making is bad. If that jives, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I mean, I look, I completely hear you. And it's it's difficult for me to argue with that. I I mean, I'm not here to argue anyway. Well, sure, uh, but you're a good think. devil's advocate, which is why I love chatting with you, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes me think what you're saying. And and you're not wrong. I mean, most of us, right? We operate within our own little spheres and and very seldom do we make decisions or do our actions have consequences that reverberate across the seas, right? Mm-hmm. But from a practical standpoint, you're not wrong. You're probably more effective with that sort of approach. But where the global aspect comes in your thinking, I think is critical, right? And you sort of touched upon this when you were talking about the knowledge and the information that's available out there, right? If you're thinking global first, and then acting local, I think you're in a good position, right? But if you're thinking global towards the end, I think then you're in a difficult spot. Well, what if you, you need to leverage what's what if available thinking, out there? What if thinking globally causes you to panic and freeze, which seems to be the case for a lot of people, right? Like a lot of people have just like tuned out, you know, like there's a certain number of people that I would love if they like listen to this, con- you know, this conversation and, you know, I might even share it with them, but they might be at the point with me personally 
It's like, I'm just not even, I'm, I just don't even want to hear it anymore. Right. Like, <laughs> and I, I almost, sure I know a couple of those as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's like, I, I almost wouldn't blame them, you know, but it's just kind of like people tune out because it's all so overwhelming and I think my opinion maybe triggers people at times because it's so radically outside of what they're used to hearing. Right. But it's just difficult to digest. They're like, what? Like, you just don't want any, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing about anarchy. It's not, it's not about no rules. It's about no rulers. That's, that's Mm -hmm. a catchphrase I can get behind, frankly, like, that that's a good summary of the idea because it's like it's not about zero government it's about being against sort of too much government right or it's mm-hmm. a, you know monarchy means one ruler anarchy means no rulers it doesn't mean no rules like that's where they've misled people when it comes to that word so it is you know <laughs> People get turned off because they're not willing to like hear the full thought. They hear one part of it and they're just like, "Mm -mm, no, not going to go there. Like, I'm just not willing to even consider it. It's so far fetched. But what if it isn't? You know, I always go back to ecosystems like there's never like in a natural ecosystem. There's no single. There's no government. You know, there's rules, there's order, but there's no government. Right. And that's no metaphor. That's like, that's reality. That's the natural world. We just like to push each other around. I think we like to decide things for other people. We are more complex. You know, we are, I should say we are more complicated, perhaps not complex. I can't Uh, argue with you there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have language, which is, uh, you know, an an indexer. We have self-awareness, like, like kind of intense self-awareness, right? Yeah. 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 You know, I mean, as a, as a student of game theory, you know, like it has been so central to my education and to my application. Uh, this is very intriguing conversation. So let me give you and the listeners a bit of a background, a quick one-on-one on game theory, right? Yeah, please. Uh, so that I can, I can, I can lay the context of what I'm about to say next. Essentially there's two types of games in game theory. One is finite games. Finite games have a set of rules that all the players abide by, and there is a clear goal of winning. So a basketball game, sure. right? Or a baseball game or, or something, something equitable. And then you have infinite games where the goal is not to win. It is to outlast competition. Okay. So right? we're talking hide and go seek. Sure. Yeah, that's a good example okay. of, of, of infinite games. I mean, technically, business is, is an infinite game. Right? You can always make more money or you can always keep growing or there's just infinite possibility. I mean, well, you don't win the game of business, right? There's no winning in business. You just well, have there's, to. There's no end. It's, to, in, it, it's yeah. infinite. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Okay. You, just have to, you just have to outlast your competition into oblivion, right? 
So business is a very good example. Although in the practical world, business is strange because business is an infinite game played with finite rules and hence some of the short-termism and capitalism that we've seen uh, recently and continue to. From that perspective, it's, it's very interesting what you're saying about anarchy, right? About no rulers, but rules. Mm-hmm. And my mind always tends to go towards game theory when I'm thinking about what are the possibilities or what are the consequences of, of applying something into the real world, right? I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I really do not. I mean, I, there are some questions. What, is, what are the source of the rules, for example, right? If you don't have governance, and I'm not talking a centralized government, I'm talking a system, right? Anarchy is, does away with the system. So how do you agree on the rules? Are they unsaid rules? For example, do not kill people, right? Are we talking that level or are we, are we going granular, right? A lot of people so, say like Hammurabi's code is a pretty, pretty good like set of rules, like any more, any less, like would be no good. And I don't know how familiar you are with Hammurabi's code. Not very. Me neither, frankly, like I need to do some more reading, but I know the gist of it is it's a very ancient um, sort of law, right? I believe it goes back to like Mesopotamia, you know, and it was under King Hammurabi. You know, he was a monarch or a dictator, whichever you prefer, but he set these laws for the people to live under. And it's a pretty complete set of laws. And it even goes so far as to include quite a bit of detail into sort of how contract law should operate. So contract law is a perfect, perfect example of sort of self-regulation. You know, that's a big idea in permaculture, in ecology, the idea of self-organizing systems, right? So how do we, how do we have a system without our current system? Well, it wouldn't be so different, right? Like we're not, we're not going to blow everything up like and remove it all. It's basically like strip it back to the basic parts would be the ideal, you know, for any like anarchist. And yes, we have these like agreed upon rules. You could call it the social contract. A lot of, a lot of us have problems with the current social contract, right? Because at what point did I agree to be involuntarily taxed? both on my income and on my property, right? Like that's a very like, that's one of the very like core issues is that's not something I ever agreed to. And, um, you know, we can all agree that you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't kill and you shouldn't slander and you shouldn't assault and you shouldn't rape, you know, like these are, these are the things that damn near everybody can agree upon unless they're a psychopath. But when you get more complicated than that, like the gist of contract law is you need to like make an agreement and like adhere to it. And if there's a, a, you know, a break of the agreement, then there are consequences and there should be some form of justice. And, you know, courts would still exist, local courts. You know, I don't know if it would ever go any further than the county in, in sort of the ideal, you know, idea. Um, of like they call jurisdiction, it jurisdiction yeah you know, well they call it uh what is it 
sort of anarchy land or uh I forget there's a common sort of way people people phrase that but if we lived in such a place you know there would still be courts that's that's the point mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get at yeah I mean that's an area that I need to definitely learn more about not just the code the Hammurabi code that you mentioned but mm-hmm. what anarchy in action would look like because look at the end of the day the the core at the at, at the middle of the system is the individual and and the system should facilitate the individual in their requirements and in what they want, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, whether that's anarchy or communism, depending on what the individual or the, the group of individuals choose, should be up to them, mm-hmm. right? So I don't want to discard anarchy just because I have a particular vision in mind of what my perfect system and what I think my perfect system looks like and represents. Mm-hmm. So I, I definitely need to educate myself more on that. Well, I'll throw this at you. You know, some people call themselves anarcho-communists. The mm-hmm. idea being, you know, my ideal, my ideal would be to live in a commune and under, you know, have a communist collective, mm-hmm. but I don't, believe it's my place to impose that on everybody you know that's an anarcho anarcho communist now am i going to live in their commune i don't know it depends on how nice it is i suppose like prove it to me you know prove it to me change my mind that right to choose yeah my ideal you know i would love to buy a big plot of land if i can gain some success right some some capital you know by being a businessman by being a capitalist, I know that's a dirty word these days, right? But like by being someone who wants to generate wealth, I would like to buy a big piece of land and basically start what you might consider to be like a planned community, right? So have a, I hate to even use the phrase HOA, but I think you need some form of a community agreement that says this is the the basic structure of our community these are the rules this this is how we deal with conflict resolution um but like your property is your property and you know so my ideal would be to selectively build a neighborhood with people of similar values you know call it anarcho-capitalism you know block and if the anarcho-commies are across the street maybe we play each other in volleyball you know like we don't have to hate each other. <laughs> sure. There's no reason to. Yeah. So it's, you know, I just think it's not so extreme. It sounds, you know, it's like people are afraid of communism in the same way they're afraid of anarchy. Mm. And it's like, we don't have to be enemies. Um, it's just, to me, the enemy is the authoritarian, which it seems mm. often, often like there's a slippery slope from, you know, to totalitarian, like, you know, crisis, um, you know, nations in crisis being manipulated into sort of authoritarian communism, you know, dictatorial communism. And it's because it's an easy sell. I think, I think it's a short-term sell. It's, we're going to, we're going to feed y'all. We're going to pay y'all, you know, like it's going to be good. We're all going to be like fed and housed and happy. And that's an easy idea to say, "Mm, yummy, you know, What's less easy to say is good is everyone's on their fucking own. That's less pleasant. That's less 
you know, fairy tale, but I think it's long-term a better attitude because everybody's not actually on their own. It's to say everyone's responsible for themselves first and their own local community second. So if your community has troubles, like part of your responsibility should be to contribute in some way, you know, there's, there's to be personally responsible without being conscientious and like caring for your, your ecosphere, your ecology, your direct ecosystem that includes your neighbors and your local economy, right? That's you're not being self-serving in the long term. So like Mm -hmm. this concept of personal responsibility is deeper than just, I got to feed myself and house myself. You know, if you really tease it out, there's a bit of a communistic element to it but you know the 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 basic argument is you can never force anybody to do that against their will if people want to be selfish and not help their neighbor you know as long as they don't hurt anybody directly let them do it it's you know we're not going to be as chummy with them as we are with the people that do help their neighbor but you know selfishness is not inherently self-serving or it is, you know, I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I I get the essence of what you're saying. I mean, look, self-reliance is sustainable and uh, you know, perhaps to someone like you, it's very seductive as well. Um, Just for the sake of alliteration, I went with that word, but you know what I mean by that? Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I suppose to someone like me, right. It's not that seductive. Right. And that's where the, the balance between order and chaos comes back in. So I know that I'm, I'm good at dealing with chaos in certain areas, right? Intellectual chaos, emotional chaos. I'm very, mm-hmm. very good at dealing with. But if you give me uh, chaos in a jungle or, uh-huh. you know, then, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely. Yeah, man. I, I, remember, I remember camping with you. You, you, you didn't like the bugs. <laughs> yeah, I, I was useless. I was, I was just fodder. You know, you, you guys just brought me along so the mosquitoes munch on me and not you lot. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure you rolled your ankle at one point too. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's not, let's not go there. Right? I'm just blowing but, smoke up your ass. <laughs> but again, even chaos and, and order, as, as you'd expect, are very nuanced. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the complication arises when many individuals get together and have to create a system. So even... um anarcho-communist retreat mm-hmm. right or a, a, a simply homogenous anarchist retreat or communist retreat for that matter at some point will hit chaos mm. that they're not ready for mm-hmm. right? that's just the nature of human beings and and to my mind what allows us to get past those continue building past those is structure it's what you would think isn't it like yeah, that's, what yeah. That's, that's why I said to my mind. Yeah. So let me give you a practical example, right? Like we also mm-hmm. we all saw how inept FEMA can be. I'm not going to say they've always dropped the ball as hard as they did with Katrina, but you know, again, like New Orleans got hit a couple weeks ago, and you know, there's just like that whole the emergency response system, right? At this point, we leave it in the hands of the government. We say, mm. you know, take our tax tax money, 
And, uh, you know, if there's a big emergency, like y'all fix it, right? Come in and save the day. Well, they don't always do such a good job, but people in my community, let's say the people that I listen to, there's, there's sort of this network of podcasts, which I'm very like gently trying to weasel my way into. Right. But there's probably five or six podcasters at least that, you know, in a pretty large community of people when it's all added up, you know, we're talking probably a million strong as far as people to listen to this sort of network. And, um, they've organized this thing called citizens assisting citizens. By the way, when I say about a million people, I'm talking like in the States, you know, it's at least three quarters of a million, probably a million people. Hmm. And, um, they've organized this thing, citizens assisting citizens, CAC. And the whole idea is like, if there is an emergency, we're going to have our own response network and we're not going to like step on the toes of FEMA or the red cross. Like we're going to basically self-organize and we're going to help out the people that are affected in our own network. Right? Like we're going to keep our scope limited because we're a small organization, but if somebody in Tennessee gets their house flooded, everybody for 300 miles around who's in that network contributes voluntarily, whether that be financial or packing up their truck full of clean drinking water and clean clothes and toothbrushes and toothpaste and driving that shit into the flood zone. Like, you know, that's anarchy in action. It's people taking personal responsibility for those in their network, even if they're not technically neighbors and maybe they live a state or two away, but the shared values say we take responsibility for ourselves and to some extent, one another. We're a mutually supportive system that is self-organizing and we're not going to turn away. You know, that's the thing with like the Red Cross and FEMA. Like if you go down there and try to voluntarily like help out, you're going to be given the runaround. You're probably going to end up being told like, we really don't need you. You know, we've got it covered, but there's a million ways you, you could help. They just don't want the hassle of any more like bodies in their zone. Right. Cause it's a bureaucracy and it's, and they got rules and, you know, not that there are anything wrong with the rules, but if there's too many rules, nothing ever happens. So like, I like the idea of CAC way more than I like FEMA, you know, <laughs> And for if, sure, it, if sure. these values get spread, like what if citizens assisting citizens becomes, you know, 30 million Americans that take like readiness kind of seriously and want to help their communities. And, you know, that's, that's huge. That's huge potential. For sure. For sure. I, I think, I think an initiative like that, which is sort of complementary to whether it's existing efforts or it's working in, in isolation, right? As you said, when you gave the Tennessee example, uh, can be very helpful. And I think they can, they can lead to innovation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it is exactly those initiatives that, that organizations like FEMA, Red Cross would learn from, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's about technological innovation, whether it's about practical or whether it's even about efficiency, how, how they run their processes. Can we learn something from that? Is there something within our 
bylaws that we can adopt with compliance. Right. So, yeah, well, you know, it's like, I always say better to ask forgiveness than permission, man. Like they don't want to work with FEMA because FEMA don't want to work with them. You know, no, I'm not saying they need to work together, but they can certainly learn from each other and and trust me, they will be watching each other. Yeah. They would be fools not to. Mm. Right. Because you can learn from each other's mistakes as well. Mm. And when, when your intention is to serve, then ego is not a problem. Well, how do you, so total different topic, if you're willing to shift gears. Go on then. How do you feel about central economic planning? Because that was sort of the world you were in. Because um, that's a big thing for me. And we're all looking at cryptocurrency being like, what's going to happen here? Right. And like quantitative, quantitative easing. I know like we've sort of had our disagreement about whether or not that is a net positive in the long term. And it's like, I think they're playing, playing this infinitely complex chess game and they just don't even have the first clue how to win or what they're doing. I think it's just nonsense. I think it's all craziness. Like it's not based on anything real. It's how can I have faith in the dollar these days? Honestly. Yeah, the, the market is, the, when I say the market, I'm not saying the current state of the market, but the market, the way it exists, right, uh-huh. conceptually is, is such a difficult, it's such a difficult area to explore, right? Because it's like a Rubik's Cube that's fighting back almost. Well, well it's like you said earlier, you're not afraid of like intellectual like chaos, right? So that's why you're willing to work in that world, I imagine. And think in that yeah. world to begin yeah, with. I, I was very far away from the economics part of it, certainly okay. from the planning part. Um, but I, I did have an, an understanding. I did build an understanding of uh, how these things work. I had colleagues, for example, working at the treasury. I had friends working in, in central committees that were planning and, and assisting people that were making decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was privy to some of those discussions. What were the things they talked about, for example? When, when they were arriving at certain decisions as well. I mean, crypto is, is to me, it's, it's mad, right? Um, technologically, it makes a lot of sense, but the way it exists in the system and uh, it's, its opposers, if you will. Mm. If, to me, it's a lost battle, but what do I know? You know I know very little, right? I think um, it remains to be seen. It all depends on whether or not people adopt it. Yeah, and we, we, we were always told that governments would never adopt it. But I mean, if I remember correctly, I think Bolivia is there's now a few. Allowing- there's a few. I think it's Panama. I think it's, uh, you might be right with Bolivia. And I almost want to say Argentina. Like, didn't they have the major That's a big melt- one? They made, they had like a major meltdown. And it's not that they're making it like the national currency, they're making it legal currency. Mm-hmm. They're just saying like, you, you're allowed. And like basically sort of requiring that like people be able to do business in, in it. It's not that you're required to accept it as payment, but like with crypto, the beauty is, you know, you can use whatever coin and run it through whatever app and you got to pay your little like half a percent fee or whatever, and it'll just convert it and go in as whatever currency the person wants it. So it's Mm -hmm. like the tech 
potential to change everything and literally strip the power of central bankers by just abandoning these national currencies. Like the potential is there, at least on like a local economic level. People can start choosing to use it. And I think it's revolutionary if people do, because the whole point, you know, there's differences in the way different cryptos are built. And I'm a bit of a, I don't know a whole lot, but I know like Bitcoin is obviously the biggest, the like most well-known, everything else is almost designed around it. Uh, And the whole premise was it's, limited but it's fractional so it can be divided down as much as it needs to be but it's we're never going to add more and in times like these after seeing that little uh curve of our deficit just kind of like go off the charts it's kind of like hmm maybe there's something about a currency that there just will never be more of because nobody can arbitrarily decide to just flood the market with more dollars and i think we're starting to feel here like prices going up a little bit it's just starting but inflation could be very real here soon i don't know i'm not i'm not i'm not an expert i'm just like speaking you know shooting from the hip here but so so what is what is truly complex about this particular discussion is that we're 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 taking we're towing two lines right Mm -hmm. we're talking about conventional economics and on the other side we're we have crypto and Mm -hmm. these sort of exist in isolation theoretically speaking and then we are converging Mm -hmm. we are envisioning a portion uh, or 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 a trigger event that will that will make them converge in the terms of in terms of usage or or potential potential of usage Mm -hmm. but economics is a lot more complex simply again because of humans being involved so Logically speaking, you know, if you put a paper in front of one person and it's divided into halves, as we did in school, and you had advantages and disadvantages of Bitcoin on one side or crypto on one side and and Mm -hmm. rational economics on the other, people would more often than not choose crypto. But behavioral economics tells us that we are not rational. Our engagement with the market is not rational. Right, right, right. Why do people choose to buy an iPhone, which is double the price of a Samsung when the Samsung does the same, if not more? Well, it's like, why right? do people, why do people buy Dogecoin? I don't know if you're like at all familiar, right, yeah, like yeah, yeah, Dogecoin yeah. is kind of like a joke almost in that it, it is unlimited. They were like, fuck it. Like we're not putting a cap on this thing. Like who cares? Right. You know, it's just Dogecoin. Ha ha ha. It was like yeah. literally it picked up. Yeah. And it, it gained value, but it's like, I'm pretty sure it's worthless pretty much now. I'm not sure. I think it, it spiked and it dropped, but it's like, pump and dump. there's, there's a lot of garbage coins, you know? So we're in this weird, like chaotic period when it comes to that, but I'm just, I'm at least a little bit like reassured to think that we have these tools at our disposal because it's like, if you look at history, like, I mean, what in Germany after world war two, like, the franc was was worthless people were burning it in the street and like you know if 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 shit ever went wrong like you almost need something to use um you know again i'm like totally out of my element here but 
I'm just kind of like of the opinion. It's like, I kind of would feel better if I had some gold, like, and some silver (laughs) and Mm -hmm. a little bit of Bitcoin in reserve. And like, Mm -hmm. just so I have something to use to make deals with people, you know, aside from, especially, you know, part of my concern is the idea that they're going to try to go like cashless, generally speaking. And, um, and I mean, that... just for just for reference, India is, I mean, not not all of India, but I live a completely cashless life in India. Well, most people are just doing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. most people just don't want to deal with cash. It's like, that'd be a very easy thing to do, uh, to just kind of like let it phase out, let cash go away. But like the second they can trace every dollar, you know, I know there's like a new law. I don't think it's passed yet, but it's being like, whatever. It's like potentially every transaction over $600 in the United States would now be like, you know, recorded and like mm. potentially whatever. Um, Maybe it's like, can be flagged for audit more easily. Yeah. So it's just like, they're increasing the, the grip of like your average person's like finances, you know? I mean, to be perfectly honest from, from a defense standpoint, it is essential from a national security point uh, point of view and a defense standpoint, I'm not I'm not arguing against you. I'm that would just, just that's the rationale. Answer. That's the rationale, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and look, I understand six hundred dollars here or there is not going to make much of a difference, but that's not the point. Well, okay. Right? So let's take it back to this theme, right? Short term, long term. Short term, we think, okay, national security, like we got to catch them terrorists. You know, we got to track all the financial transactions so we can like trace patterns and like make connections and, you know, find these bad guys. Right. Okay. All well and good. You know, hypothetically all well and good. What are we giving up? We're giving up all of our privacy. You know, everybody is now under the thumb. Everybody, you know, basically a case if they, if there's ever a time where you become labeled a political enemy, they can probably like just use your financial records. Even if you are more political activist and you're by no means a terrorist, but say you, you know, gave 50 bucks to this guy four years ago who ended up bombing a building. And now you're based on the rules, right? A suspected terrorist. And they can probably like, you know, indefinitely detain you and torture you and shit. Right. Because you gave 50 bucks to a guy that you didn't know so well, 10 years ago that turned out to be a terrorist. You know, it's like, that's what I'm afraid of is just the big brother state. And like you give them the ammunition, they're probably going to use it against everybody <laughs> at some point. So it's like, we have to guard our financial privacy. And that's a big part of what crypto was, you know, invented to do is like allow for private transactions. Right. And it gets demonized as only being for drug dealers and shit like that. But it's like, you know, I'm friends with a couple drug dealers I kind of hope they stay in business, <laughs> you know, and like, that's, I believe the rub, like short-term, long-term, we got to get rid of drugs. Drugs are bad. Well, look what the drug, you know, look what the drug war did. It's like, it's all the same, man. You know? <laughs> yeah. But see, I, it, it all comes back to the system once again, right? The system mm-hmm. within which you operate, the structure within which you operate and what are your, what, what are your tolerances? What are your thresholds? I mean, the, the beauty of the, the, the conventional economic system, you know, quantitative easing and all of those things included, mm-hmm. is that the variance is not very high. So when you do fall, 
there is a safety net, right? But as soon as you transpose this variance, and for, for our listeners, I'm holding out my two hands. Um, as soon as you go towards crypto, it becomes this, right? So we saw this with Bitcoin recently where it, it just skyrocketed, mm-hmm. right? It went up to 50, 60K and then, and then fell back to 40 or, or 30 even. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure where it's at right now, but I'm, I'm not a crypto investor uh, for the record. So I don't I mean, know, I don't monitor. Me neither. Me neither. For the record, but. I have no clue what's going on. But when when you hear about these things, you are tempted to look into what happened, and it's it's a classic pump and dump. You try that in the market, and the SEC is going to be banging at your door to understand what really happened. Mm-hmm. Right? You mm-hmm. are protected. Your interest is protected. Whether something's going to happen of that, I don't I don't speak for that because at that time we're not talking about the system anymore. We're talking about the players inside the system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, you gave, a, you gave an example at the top of this conversation where you're talking about two out of 400. That's not the system's problem. Sure, the system has enabled it to an extent and there are loopholes within the system. The system isn't perfect, mm-hmm. right? But it's the players within the system that are, that are causing this or not causing it in some cases. So again, chaos order. Where, where do you find your balance, right? And, yeah. and it's individualistic. It's, it's not as simple as just transposing that. Yeah. Where, I, where I find your view particularly challenging for me is that you are not advocating for a system for all. You're advocating for a lack of a system just for yourself. And I cannot argue with that at all. But to find land, to find a country where you can exist independently within your own system, that is a challenge because not a lot of countries. I believe that's exactly what this country was supposed to be though, brother. You see my argument? Like I believe the American constitution and bill of rights are like basically the most anarchistic document, like probably ever to have been written up to that point in time. In essence, most, you know, for official government like documents, you know, to say that every person is, is totally and completely autonomous and free, you know, I mean, that was the gist, right? Like, that's what they were trying to get across. This is America where you rise and fall by your own accord. And that's not to say we should abandon one another to die in the street of starvation if you don't rise. It's just to say, like, this was meant to be a place of autonomous individuals in some form of nation, but it was, it was always meant that the government was supposed to, the only thing they're supposed to protect us in terms of like, they're supposed to protect our rights. They're not supposed to protect us from all danger and all like mishap and misfortune. You know, the world's a fucked up dangerous place. So, I mean, it's just like, that's the slippery slope to me when we start thinking that like problems can be solved from the top. Like, I just think it's flawed thinking and I could be wrong. Like you make me wonder at times, like you make a good argument and like whatever, but you're not too firm in your opinion either. I I like that you respect where I'm coming from here, but I just, I truly believe that it's that in the terms of like, is this putt putt or is this golf? Like we're playing a long game overall. And uh, 
I just don't think it's a good thing uh, to have the faith that leadership and and sort of judicial process and all that stuff is going to solve anything for us. I think, like you said, I'm not advocating to destroy the system that exists. I'm not telling anybody else how they need to exist. I just want to be left, you know, to be able to do what I want to do. As long as I create no victims, like there's, it's become so much more difficult to be a good law abiding citizen. That's just undeniable. You know, you could be stopped, you know, and asked for your papers in a lot of places now. And that scares me. I don't like that shit. You know, I'm all about like, you know, tell us the positives and net- negatives of any given medicine and let people make their minds up. The best you can hope for is to like, be convincing and get as many people on board as you can hope. But the second you force it down people's throat, you're, you're doing something so fucking immoral. Just like I think it's immoral to make like d- decisions on high that affect the whole economy below. I think it's immoral for any person to take that authority under their own hand and assume that they have the right to do that. No, you're, you're, playing with nature i believe there's no difference between an ecosystem and like a free market economy you know does that make any sense there's no difference i i don't know if i agree with that just the last bit just because as i said economics and particularly our engagement with economics is not rational well neither is nature rational there's consistency across patterns in nature well, same with they're, economic they're, activity. There's consistency no, not, across patterns. You can't expect people to act individually rational at all given times. But if you take the broad view in econ- you know, economics, people respond to incentives. There are patterns at play. And there's always, there's infinite possible self-organization possibilities. You know, that's what the open free economy is. That's, you know, are you familiar with the term agorism? Like it's kind mm-hmm. of... Yeah, I mean, the idea of the agora, like the free and open market, if left to its own devices, like that is the that is the economy viewed from an ecological point of view. Like we are all just in this in this interconnected, infinitely complex web. And when people think that they can set rules for that web, all they're doing is is making it weaker. I think. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't tend to agree with that. I, I don't tend to agree with the premise, uh, let alone what followed. How do you because, think all yes, this shit, how do you think we invented all this shit, man? Like, no, I mean, again, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that's completely untrue. I mean, templatively, you are not wrong. You can find patterns, right? Mm-hmm. But within the patterns, there's discrepancies, right? I get Again, your argument. People, people are not as predictable as, you know, possibly the nature, you know, the, the, the organism right. that we observe, but right. I think it's not so different. I don't think it's, you know, I think we kid ourselves to think we're that much different than sort of our animal neighbors, you know? And that's, that's just a whole nother discussion, really. But think about this. Think about this. Maybe we're not that different, but we are different for different reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. So sure. You could pick out two individuals. Let's say one is from South America. One is from Africa. 
right? Uh, if you if you map them out in a piece of paper for one particular economic discussion uh, decision, they probably made the same decision, but the reasons why they make arrived at that decision could be very different. So what we are looking at is the is the bottom line, right? But the consequences or the reasons why they arrived at that decision could be drastically different. And 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 then that's a pipeline of the economic system. So they had n number of options, each of them, let's say 10. So they were limited in terms of their choices. But the factors at play beforehand in the value chain could be very different. So we were discounting the, the complexity of the economic system in comparison to the ecological system, I think. I think you might be discounting the complexity of the ecosystem. It could be because I don't know much about the ecosystem. I mean, again, this, this to me is one of these like human sort of, um, like we've become a bit arrogant in terms of our relationship with nature. And, a bit. Uh, <laughs> that's my belief. And it's kind of like, uh, when we observe the, the, the ecosystem, right? Just, you could, you could use like, let's use the example of like Darwinism, right? And the evolution of that idea. Okay, so Darwin himself, you know, wrote down this fairly rudimentary explanation for what he believed to be the, you know, evolution by natural selection, right? He, he got it pretty damn close. I'd say he was 85% there, you know, but we've built upon what he kind of laid out and it's like, well, you know, he was obsessed with the idea of competition because at first glance, it looks as if everything is in like tooth and claw, like intense competition all the time, you know, survival of the fittest dog eat dog. You know, there's always a bigger fucking fish because that's the obvious, that's the obvious interpretation with the tools of the te- you know of the day he had binoculars he had microscopes but like he didn't know anything about soil life and fungi and you know mycelium networks and the exchange like this is stuff we've learned you know in terms of these ideas of co-evolution like cooperative evolution sort of mutually beneficial exchanges between organisms you know fungi and and tree roots exchanging nutrients under you know in the soil for a mutually beneficial you know relationship like that is an in, incredibly complex you can take a you know a square foot of soil and there's millions of organisms you know and hundreds of thousands of different types of organisms and it's just like we don't see all that with the naked eye but it's all going on just like we don't see with the naked eye when we're making decisions from above in terms of economics, how that's going to play out for all, shall we say, the lower life forms, as much as I don't want to say it that way, but like the people on the ground, you know, the complexity of the black market is fascinating to me, right? Illegal transactions. How does that all go down, right? It's all self-organized and there's incredibly high risk. So there's, there's discipline, but there's also this element of chaos. And why do people do it? Because there's a need, because there's a niche, because there's a role to be held that no matter what we try to do, that role always exists in our economic ecosystem. Isn't, isn't that sort of a classic short-termism story though? 
what like high risk high reward black market dangerous well, i'm just making the argument that like niches in our ecosystem and niches in our economy operate the same way like if one is left open you might get something that fills that niche that you don't want let's say like a criminal or like an invasive plant and it's because the ecosystem is disturbed you know there's a million metaphors i could i could draw but i believe that it all operates on the same you know it's like there's this word and maybe that word is god i'm not sure but i can't come up with the right word for for it all right the craziness of it all the craziness the chaos the order all of it combined i think something has us working and moving and doing stuff and we don't fully understand it but it's all self-organizing and i just don't like when people try to take more power than god gave to them and it, you know and enforcing it on others i think that's where i draw the line that yeah, makes I sense mean, that yeah, that's the logos almost, isn't it? Like the, the divine creation um, and everything we draw from that. Um, yeah, that that's not my domain at all. So I'd like to steer clear of that. Um, uh, it's almost like um, agorism or anarchy. Like it's kind of where like spiritualism sometimes like we'll meet with economics and like it's a very hard thing to have mm. faith in the unknown, right? That's what it is. It's to say yeah, like, and, let and, it, I mean, let it are, ride, we, you know? We're built in a way um, just based on the, the systems that we are part of, that that high risk is is not something that comes to us naturally. You know, if you, if you trace our roots back, then high risk was a Wednesday, right? Um, having to source your food without, without having to be able to store it was a high risk game we played every day. And we've slowly... Uh, evolved out of that for good or for bad you can you can argue hmm. it, it, it's it's complicated it, it and more than complicated it's complex right so th there's there's various possibilities that means it's complex mm -hmm. and complicated means that the way possibilities travel across each other is affected by many different factors mm -hmm. right so I'm, I'm not trying to argue that it economics is more complex or complicated than ecology at all. Mm -hmm. what, I, what I'm trying to suggest was, was that human interaction with, the, with economics makes it extremely, extremely complicated across the value chain. Mm. You know, you insert or remove something as simple as a voluntary sales tax and the data goes all wonky. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of data. For me, it's the central factor of making decisions or, or building upon decisions. Sure, sure. You know, I, I cannot otherwise. I'd be in the blind. Previous policy doesn't matter to me. I have nothing to do with that. What another country might be doing or yet another state in the same country might be doing, none of my business. I need mm -hmm. data on the people and on, on, on the lives that will be affected directly, human or otherwise. Right. And economics is, is something that I understood from a distance and economic decision is something that I understood from a distance and my, my respect for people that, that work in that sphere uh, grew tremendously because it requires a certain level of, of understanding of human beings, which is not required elsewhere. It just isn't at that level. Yeah, and uh, I, maybe that's one of the reasons I tend to respect uh, it a bit more than than 
some of us. Yeah, I suppose it's not that I respect it. Like it's impressive that you can economists can kind of predict and um, I don't know. I mean, you got to have a hell of a brain, but I, I, again, I would almost argue it's almost just arrogance to say that we can understand fully. Like, I think it's just so much, all of it is so much more complex than mm. we give it credit for. Um, that's why I don't like dumping $7 trillion or whatever we dumped into the economy kind of like haphazardly. I don't know if that's the best word to use, but it's like, I believe we doubled the deficit in like two years. It wasn't time. efficient. Yeah, it wasn't efficient. I think I think both of us can. And most of that here. damn money, most of that damn money funneled right back up to the top, to the wealthiest among us. Like, so how am I, again, I'll ask again, like, how can I have faith in these central planners when, you know, it's like this past two years, oh, we're going to, you know, help out everybody. We're going to prop up the economy. It's like, no, you just propped up Jeff Bezos when you boil it down. Like, I don't care what your intentions were. Let's, let's look at what happened. You know, you're talking about data. Like, I agree. Let's look at the data, but predicting and like reflecting are two different things. Let's give up on thinking we can even predict because I think that's a dangerous game to play. It's like people are trying to, have you heard about how they're trying to bring back the woolly mammoth? Yeah, I, I think I was the one who mentioned it too. Uh, yeah, you you did. I had already like seen something about it, but I read into it a little bit more, right? Mm. And the argument is like we could have a positive influence on the Arctic tundra because woolly mammoths are what you might call like a keystone species. They have a very huge impact on 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 the food chain, you know, right? Like they're and and part of the argument is we're trying to preserve elephant genetics because elephants are rapidly going, you know, extinct, you know, it's all like good intent. Yeah. Good intent. But as we all saw in Jurassic park, like bringing shit back from the dead, you know, could be fucking bad. I don't know. And it's not to say Jurassic park knows anything about what it's talking about, but I would argue it's just like, that's another example. We're playing God. We're trying to like, we, you know, the human brain is pretty good at playing out potential scenarios, right? Like running simulations in your brain to make the best possible decisions, right? Like if this, then that, that's what our brains are designed to do, but not on a global scale and really not on an e ecosystem scale, even though we're getting better at that. Like the, the, <laughs> The world of gardening has developed quite a bit in the last 10,000 years. <laughs> it's a pretty short amount of time. It really hasn't developed a whole lot more in the last 200 years than it did, you know, mm. everything up to 200 years ago. Like we have learned a lot about gardening and about botany and about plants, but we're still just scratching the motherfucking surface of what there is to understand about ecology the systems, mm. the dynamics at play. That is something we're just, we're, we're still infantile in our knowledge about that. And I would argue we're probably infantile in our knowledge of economics equally. So, because I think, again, they're essentially very similar studies. It's the study of, of complex systems. And I, um, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I think ecologists are inherently humble, generally speaking, because I've said it's 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 known as being more or less a observation based science more than a experimentation 
based science. You know, it's not to say there aren't experiments that can be done, but when you're dealing with ecosystems as a whole, there's so many variables at play, you have no way of predicting or even controlling or, or measuring the result of any given input, right? Because you don't know if it was a direct result or, you know, what. It's the same with eco- economics, I believe, where you cannot control for enough variables to effectively and really safely manipulate things. It's not a good idea. Manipulation. Let's sit back and observe and let's glean understanding through observation and through maybe small interaction, but to do large scale experimentation on whole ecosystems or whole economies is it's just a real dangerous game to play i'm not saying you can't maybe win the win the game right if we're talking games it's, no, it's suicidal it's suicidal but it's dangerous and yeah yeah it's it's it, it can backfire in a very bad way and i suppose economists i i do agree with you there is a certain bit of arrogance i suppose maybe because they they control more mm. than than what ecologists have had to say so far and you're right i think that the tide is shifting um at a, at a slow rate but slowly but surely there is a bit more focus on okay what are the environmental effects uh, or mm-hmm. what are the effects to our general environment right of, of decisions like that and I, I think what what's very interesting is not that we're comparing ecology and economics because you cannot right it's not possible i think that's where i'm arguing with you i think you should and you can i think they're very comparable I think there's a relationship between them, but to to compare them on paper uh, academically uh, is going to be a bit of a challenge, okay. right? Uh, uh, you you could you could argue, depending on the case, they're subsets of each other as well. But some people say you have no economy without ecology, right? I mean, all our right. resources come of the earth. You know, it's yeah. So yeah, no doubt they, they could be subsets, right? Um, What's interesting to me is to think about the relationship that they each have with technology mm-hmm. because economics struggles uh, as you were talking about gardening and the advancement that we've made over the last 10,000 years and, and then the rate of advancement slowing down in the past 200 years. I think the same can be said of economics. Mm. And particularly when you look at something like technology, which is this, this behemoth mm-hmm. uh, in the way it affects how we think, what we do, how we do, uh, all aspects of earthly life get, get affected, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that will pay, play a key role in shifting this tide one way or the other. Mm. Because, and this sort of brings me back to my point, because ecology is easier in my, I don't want to say easy, is ready to be understood, more than economics is ready to be understood. You, you might be right. There might be more chaos involved or however you want to describe it. Yeah. Yeah, because nature has put systems in place and rules in place that nature abides by. Mm-hmm. It's only because of natural disasters, which one could argue are a part of that structure and that system, that, that some of these rules get rewritten for a particular ecological sphere that is a subset of the larger ecological sphere Mm. but economics and human beings aren't that we are a lot more vulnerable 
to things around us. I think that's been made very clear in the last 25 years, at least since I've been on this planet. I suppose one thing we're vulnerable to is bad ideas. You know, that's not really something that you have an analog for in nature. There's no such thing as like a a viral thought necessarily. We're vulnerable to ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I don't know of many parts of the ecological sphere that are vulnerable to themselves. As far as like potential for suicide or do you mean? Yeah. Potential for suicide, potential for making decisions that are like really bad for us. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I see nature is smarter. What if, what if, what if it's just a thought, but like, what if the reason we are more prone to sort of irrational behavior, shall we say, is because of our separation from nature and from the ecosystem. And what if the reason for our economic sort of troubles, right? Our, our instability, the, the business cycle, the boom and bust, what if it is because we are generally, generally unwell and generally unhappy and generally making poor choices and Again, like I think we have faulty thinking on certain things, and maybe part of that is is thinking that human beings like are today what we should and you know should be, could be, were. Am I making sense? I'm on a bit of a tirade here, but what if our separation from nature has turned us into something less? rational and and therefore the more separated we become from nature the worse our economic outlook gets i think that's a rational argument in itself i think they're inextricably connected the health of the ecosystem and the health of the economy yeah like that is that that's obvious that's obvious in the long-term view if we don't have health in the ecosystem, how can we live healthily on the planet? You might put all your chips on the on the side of going to Mars. That's not me. You know, I'm not talking to you, Ashwin. I'm talking to the listener there. But it's like, <laughs> you know, I just like it's just a thought, man. It's like you're right. People are unpredictable and people are dumb sometimes, and we do terrible things. But I think it all goes back to when we walked away from the Garden of Eden. You know, like I take that biblical story very seriously as a pretty intense metaphor of like Mm. the tree of knowledge being this, like, it wasn't so much that we couldn't have knowledge, but when you eat of it, when you, when you, you know, it's like they, they separated, they, they did, they broke the one rule God asked them not to break. And that was trying to, trying to understand the world instead of just enjoying it. It's like, that's a powerful metaphor. And there's so much symbolism with the serpent, you know, not just mm. in Christianity, but in every culture. And yeah, Norse mythology has a similar depiction of, our, of I think, I think our relationship to the snake is sort of like symbolic of our, our, our fear of nature oftentimes and yeah, uh, chaos. Yeah. The snake isn't always depicted in a bad light, but it's always a complex character. Let's put it that way. Mm. 
And mm. I should know more than I do, but I know that that's a very interesting, like universal symbol in human culture, like the snake yeah. in the grass. It's like sort of the intermediary between us and, and mother earth, I think. In a lot yeah, of we, we still haven't evolved out of that. Our, our eyesight for, for mm-hmm. spotting those movements is still, is still at par. One could argue compared to the other evolution, evolutionary changes our body has been through. So there, there's some serious motherfucking issues there. <laughs> so there's there, you just said something about like, we've, we've evolved maybe from what we were. Right. And that's, that's undeniable in some regards, but we're at the same time. Like, I think we basically have more or less the same DNA from from our ancestors. It's the expression I've come to believe. It's the expression of the DNA that that is changing more than the DNA itself. Like I heard this argument, it was a optometrist, or I'm sorry, not an optometrist, a um, orthodontist, okay? And he is like, he's being threatened with losing his license for some of the shit that he's published and talked about. Because he's basically arguing that like, like crooked teeth is a symptom of bad diet more than it is like a shift in genetics. Like the premise of all orthodontia, like understanding is that we've kind of lost the genes for good teeth. Like it's a crapshoot based on your genes. If you get straight teeth or crooked teeth, but it's, Mm. it's like, no, like we all have genes for good teeth there's an environmental um, element at play here where we're feeding our children soft food, like not just when they're infants, but like for their entire childhood, you know, it's all macro, you know, macaroni and cheese and shit. You know, it's like, we need like raw food and raw vegetables and like, nah, 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 chewing on them ham bones and shit to develop healthy, robust jaws. Like his argument is that every person has the ability to retain their wisdom teeth if they simply eat like an like a you know reasonable whatever a um, a human diet like a a more textured diet. What's the word I'm looking for? Biologically appropriate diet or whatever. You know, if mm. we we're chewing on steak at the age of two years old instead of still eating freaking mushy carrots and shit, you, you know, like. It could be a different story. So it's just one of these, we make all these assumptions about like what, what our bodies are and like what our brains are, but like, you know, all this stuff with ADHD and like all these very real afflictions that people are experiencing. I think so much of it is caused by environmental, either, you know, overstimulation or poor nutrition or lack of direct sunlight or, you know, fill in the mm. fucking blank. Like, but at, at its core, it's a separation from nature and how this all connects with like what we've been discussing to me is obvious is so obvious, but I think, like- I think what you said at the top, and of course you sort of progressed with, you know, different examples. Um, I think it's very, 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 very interesting to think about. And I have a, I have a compounding take on that, right? Mm. So we, we, essentially your premise was that, is there a, a disconnect between us and nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, personally speaking, it'd be very difficult for me to opine on that, but I, I do see your point, especially given the examples that you've just shared with us. But on the flip side, I think it's also interesting to think about the over 
connections that we have with the world around us. So one is, of course, the lack of connection that we have with nature, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then we also have this, this well of, of things that we do choose to connect with. Mm-hmm. And we connect with so many things now. Mm-hmm. We are so distracted and, and polluted almost mm-hmm. with the amount of information available to us on, on different matters, different subjects that, that we have grown to think are important. Mm-hmm. You know, whether that's society driven or family driven or self driven, whatever that might be. But we're so diluted that to then engage with something like nature to the fullest extent. And of course that extent varies individual to individual, right? But to an appropriate extent becomes very difficult. Yeah. And there's inertia, there's, there's friction to do that. I, I don't think any person would argue that connecting with nature has, has pitfalls. Of course you could go into nature and get bit by a snake. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about this harmonious connection with nature that, that allows us to feel things that we don't get from elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? Happiness being one of them. I think it does that to people. You know, there may be some, some time that you build up, but once you do that, once I did that, once I was no longer useless in nature and camping, I developed a fondness for it. And it takes time, of course, but it, I, I, I do think that there is, there is this seesaw balance and act going on there which is essential and it's not just a lack of something but it's also overstimulation and over engagement with other things yeah you know it's makes me think about the fact that steve jobs apparently wouldn't let his kids use an ipad you know it's like maybe that tells us something like he understood there's there's um there's a cost to um to letting all these things flood into our perception and like you said like caring about so many things it's like i was saying about like i don't think think global is necessarily good advice Mm. think local act local you know like Mm. keep it simple stupid you know what i mean like (laughs) it's almost like you know i was talking to dr melissa who uh i think you know about she was on the show a couple weeks back I got to get it back on. Yeah. Um, You know, we were talking about, God damn, I keep doing this, man. Keep losing it. Keep losing it. What were we talking about, Ashwin? Think think local, act local. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? Yeah. That's a very, very hopeful, yeah. (laughs) God damn, it's gone. It's gone. Got distracted. What are you going to do? Anywho, you know what? Should we take like a moment? And I'm thinking about using the restroom. I don't know how long you want to go. It's up to you, really. You know, we've been going on for oh wow, it's been a couple of hours, hasn't it? Like, keep going. Has it has it already been two hours? Yeah. Holy shit, brother! Goes quick, don't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're gonna fix it. It's not like we're gonna solve it here. But no, but this this is it, right? This is Tank Local. Right, mm-hmm. and we have the platform now through technology to, to perhaps uh, give encouragement or, at at the best, you know, ignite some thoughts in, in people that listen, people that talk, uh, that that can then go on to do great things and and things that are sustainable, uh, you know. As uh, so, for our listeners, the whole idea behind this conversation was to to distinguish 
how to strike a balance between short term and long term and and mm. uh, i mean we haven't quite done that <laughs> but mm. i i think it's it's very important to to start considering that in our in our decision making and i tell you and i tell you how we that. i know exactly how we strike a balance we yeah. listen to one another you know, between short-term and long-term goals, right? That's what all this shit is about. That's what all these arguments are about. How do you, how do you fold that in with the idea of competition? Well, I don't know if that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's really just, it's, it's a shame that we're so polarized. And I know everybody agrees. It's a shame we're so polarized. So finding a balance, how do we, how do we, how do we somehow navigate this crazy world together? Well, the only thing we can do is listen to the other points of view and understand that they might have some validity, even if we've been programmed to hate one another for pretty like shitty reasons. Am I, am I making sense here? It's like, if we're ever going to sort of come to that balance of addressing short-term problems, but not losing sight of long-term, you know, the long-term direction of things, we will never do that by shouting each other down and assuming that I'm on the right side and they're on the wrong side. And, you know, it's like, we're both on the right side. We're both on the wrong side. What is going on here? Let's just talk about it which is easier to do with you than a lot of people because you think about things in sort of a nuanced kind of way. You have your values, but you're not so goddamn entrenched in them that you can't like discuss. And I don't know how we like spread that, that attitude of like open discourse and respect, right? Like it's all about respecting each other. But I don't know how to. How I have to... a possible solution for that, actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a solution that perhaps a lot of people can 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 try. You know, for me, this came out of trauma. You know, I, I was I was not always like this, hmm. and for me to, I mean, you've known me for a long time, and you've always known that I have a huge ego, right? <laughs> Hey, you said it. <laughs> yeah, it means another car seat, isn't it? <laughs> no, I mean, no, not too bad, bro. You're pretty good. Yeah, you're pretty good. Now, now I am. Now yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a point in time where, oh my God, Jesus, it was, it was huge. And yeah, what, what, I always had this central belief that in order to be happy, in order to be satisfied, you need to have a very strong value system that you keep going back to. Mm-hmm. And then trauma happened and suddenly I realized that I need help. Hmm. And the, the final push in my life came through an individual that, that demonstrated to me that, no, you don't need a very strong value system. You know, I'm not even talking about a flexible value system. I'm talking about the lack of a value system. Hmm. You don't have to be consistent in life just because you made a decision five years ago or fucking five minutes ago, you don't have to continue with that. And that really freed me hmm. from, from shackles and from, from being consistent 
from, from using that value system as an anchor to make decisions from. And it, that came out of trauma. Mm. I mean, what a beautiful gift. You know, of course, it's important to enjoy your ego and it's important to, to make sure that others can enjoy it as well right? A, a big part of my listening is my ego because I am learning. It's selfish. Listening is selfish to me. Mm. And a lot of times I'm thinking to myself, what the fuck is this dude saying? Not to not basis on our conversation, but otherwise. So it's a lesson for what not to do. Again, selfish ego, right? And then also be having the power to then guide the conversation. You speak for five minutes. I choose where the conversation goes next. Ego, right? But this came out of trauma. And a lot of people, as you mentioned, you know, with ADHD, with uh, PTSD as well, uh, we have so many victims of sexual assault, of harassment, of rape. They all suffer from PTSD. This came out of trauma. It was, a, it was an opportunity for me to rewire myself mm-hmm. and increase my empathy index and my emotional quotient. Mm. So I suppose if the data on mental health issues is true, that could be a way to, to increase listening to each other and empathy for one another. Well, what you're talking about, I think, is like humbling ourselves, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean abandoning all belief, but I think you're right in that it's, it's probably good for all of us, I was going to say at some point, but probably at many points, to sort of step outside of our own selves look back and say you know it's like i i've come to like appreciate stoic philosophy and um, Mm. one of the big questions in stoic philosophy is is this necessary Mm. right just whatever it is is this necessary and whether that's an opinion or you know a habit, like it doesn't matter. Like some of our opinions maybe just aren't necessary. And we're, you know, it's, we've become quite opinionated and stepping outside of them, kind of discarding what's not useful, reassessing, like doesn't mean that you got to start over or say, you know, I didn't know a damn thing, but you kind of move on and, and, you know, lose some baggage, pick up something new occasionally, right? Like, we can all and learn from each other. To start right because shedding opinions is hard, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? We form them over time, and we have to challenge our ourselves very deeply to to change our opinion, mm-hmm. right? But a great place to start is to is to change how we react to things. Mm-hmm. Sort of noticing how you react, and yeah, yeah, that's a big part of stoicism too. And I know. Um, like with, with sort of meditation and sort of noticing your feelings, right? Being yeah, aware I mean, reflection, of your feelings. Reflection yeah. is an art in that sense. And meditation was my final push, mm. you know, to, to recover from, from my ailments. And you know, I tried everything. I went through mandated therapy. I went through a, psych, um, a therapist afterwards, a psychologist afterwards. And after a point, it, was, it wasn't improving. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd say a roughly about 60, 65% recovery was made through, through some of these more traditional and scientific ways. Right. But I, I hit a wall after that. And look, of course, this is very much 
a single person's case. So the sample size isn't big enough, but my final push came from meditation from things like asking for forgiveness. You know, where does, where does science talk about that? Yeah. 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 There's, there's a right. level beneath the surface that we shouldn't ignore. Right. There's a lot of wisdom in, in sort of the traditions of so many of our religions, you know, I've always had trouble with the, the idea of needing salvation or needing to ask forgiveness for salvation. But it actually makes sense if you disregard the notion of an afterlife. Like, I think what you were just talking about was your own salvation from sort of suffering with these post-traumatic, you know, symptoms. And by asking forgiveness, you can be saved. But it's not about when you're dead. It's about when you're fucking here living, right? Mm. Like, I think that's that's powerful that you actually were able to experience that. That's so amazing. Yeah, and it's overwhelming. You know, I see your face. You just kind of like I can see you're fucking feeling it. You know. Yeah, there, there was a tipping point. I remember because I mean, I used to wake up in a pool of sweat, um, mm. having recurring nightmares in which I was basically paralytic. And the same thing would play out again and again, right? Pretty much like clockwork every night. And this went on for over two years, right? Initially, when it started, it was my, my, my response was, okay, I'm just stressed out. Work is hard. I have responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. And before you know it, your phone is ringing and you're off to work and you don't have time to process it. But once I left my, left my job, I had nothing but time on my hands. Life went from 100 to zero. And I wasn't even back home in India. I was in South Africa where I didn't have any friends, any, like any larger family it was just the four of us, me and my immediate family. Mm. So the exposure to other things was a bit limited. I had a lot of time to myself is what I'm trying to say. Mm. And I got time then to reflect on, okay, what's going on with me. Right. But it, it the, the, the tipping point is, is, is nature opening its doors to you, the colloquial nature opening its doors to you, right? And, and suddenly you find yourself with a blank piece of canvas and it empowers you, that, that tipping point empowers you to paint a new you. And, and then that is where your upbringing and the most powerful influences of your life allow you to paint and fill that canvas. I was just lucky enough to be around someone who, who held my hand and, and showed me various filled canvases to then choose mine from, right? They showed me different shades of what life could be mm. and how I could fill my own canvas by picking out the best things from them. Right. And I think that's, that's the key reason why empathy was, was so empowering for me. You know, people often say empathy is empowering externally, but for me, it was internally because I could shed stuff. All that extra connection I was talking about that we are so diluted, Mm. you know, we're so polluted by all this extra information. I'm not even talking about fake information. I'm just talking about the volume of information in our heads. I don't care about a lot of that stuff anymore. Mm. You know, I've, I've given myself the power to not care about a lot of those things. Selective and to your point, 
selective to live in my sphere yeah to live in my sphere however small or large that might be understanding where i have influence where Mm -hmm. i want to influence and being okay with that 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 takes some self-challenging and unlearning which is not easy don't they call it the serenity prayer like uh lord give me the strength to what is it to to have influence over the things that i can and to you know surrender the things that i can't or what have Mm. you you know it's something of that nature i don't know word for word but yeah it's such a simple thought but like we forget it all the time and i almost think it's it's like when people say like oh you know we're living in godless times like maybe they're not so wrong (laughs) you know it's like most people don't have much of a spiritual life these days. It doesn't seem maybe that's an unfair assumption, but like, it just seems as if we're all on the, on the hamster wheel and we're not like Mm. making those sort of, we're not developing, we're not growing. We're not like, like you said, sort of repainting the canvas of our own existence. I like that image because I've reinvented myself once or twice you know, little bits at a time and it wasn't conscious, but it is something we can choose to do. And with some like concerted effort and, and like you said, reflection and time, like these are not things that you can rush. And that's part of why I I advocate people take like extended backpacking trips, even if you've never Mm. backpacked, because you'll never have more space to think than when you're, you know, 30 miles you know, down on a 60 mile hike, you know, you'd spend five or 10 days out in the wilderness, whatever you want. It's like, that gives you the time and space to maybe to see yourself in a way that you you don't have the time to do otherwise, you know, mm. like you said, when it's just get up, you know, alarm clock, go to work, you know, how can you ever sort of you don't have the time or space to grieve your dying self and, and be reborn. You need to, you need to give yourself that opportunity. If that's, I suppose, something that, that you need. And I think a lot of us need that. That's why I was saying that we, we are dangerous for ourselves Hmm. because we are, and we can probably blame the system here. I mean, not our engagement with the system, but we can probably blame the system to an extent here that, we are so in tune with responsibilities and what we need to do, what we think we need to do that we can be dangerous for, for ourselves. Hmm. And I, I think you're bang on about living in a godless time. When I say God, I don't mean a deity or a, right. or, a or a religion. And I'm pretty sure you don't either. No, but you know, I'm pretty sure if you're able to see the data on, on the, the grow the, declining state of religion or any god giving force whatever that might be spiritual force and conspiracy theories and isolation i think you'll find it a direct and invertly proportionate correlation yeah yeah Yeah. you might be right well because it's like people are filling that that hole that is missing you know with other things with other concerns um you know they're looking for ways to understand the world and have purpose in it, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes that gets manifested in, in ways probably due to like manipulation and, and 
you know, in a lot of ways, like these addictive, you know, well understood addictive sort of pathways into our into our brains that that they're using against us so often. You know, it's, it's really insidious in so many ways. Um, like I said, I, you know, it's like unplugging from the matrix. Like what, it, it sucks how true that movie is. It sucks. <laughs> it sucks, man. Like so many people it are just sucks how good it is. So you want to keep it's watching so it. Good. <laughs> it's so fucking good, but it's like so true. And, uh, you know, so many people just will never like never unplug just, and that's okay, whatever. But like, it's really not okay like it's better for them if they unplug you know yeah. it's not for us right exactly. we have nothing to gain exactly exactly right yes yes even though I mean, we gain be... as a collective but individually we don't gain a lot by someone unplugging somewhere mm. and, un- right. un- and unplugging isn't even you know it, it's not even that drastic it's just taking a few moments mm-hmm. you know it's a gradual process you don't you don't you don't slide down a a slimy hole somewhere in Zion or, or, or anything like that. It's, it's a lot, a lot easier than, than what was shown in the matrix. Right. Well, and it's like, it's like, I ain't perfect neither. You know, I, I do a lot of passive consumption and a lot of programming goes into these eyeballs, you know, and it's, even though I'm very like skeptical, like some of it has its influence good or, you know, good or not. And, uh, but man, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we're going to need to do this like many, many more times. I hope, you know, um, maybe like get into Hopefully the next one could be in person in Thailand. That'd be sweet. Um, but I'm thinking like, you know, this was your intro. This was our, like, this is us getting on the same page as friends and like sharing with the audience, like what we're all about, I guess, and where we're at personally and why, why not talk about the way things are and maybe the way things could be while we're at it. Like that's all this is. Um, maybe if we have another one here, you know, before long, we'll pick a specific thing or something, but like, mm. I kind of wanted this to be an open-ended conversation. So I guess I'll give you the chance. Like, do you have anything else you want to talk about? Any other, I, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for, mm. for people who are still listening. Cause if yeah, you stuck yeah. around for this long, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I hope it was entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we went in quite a few directions and we kept it quite generic. So uh, apologies for that, but this was a lot of fun and and thank you very much, Michael, for, for having me. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad we did this week. I mean, most of our conversations do end up like this. You know, we, we may call each other for a quick catch up and, yeah. and some life updates, but this is where things usually end up going. Yeah, it usually so. takes a couple hours. So yeah. 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 <laughs> So this is, isn't anything uh, new or different for us, but yeah, um, I think the, this is, as you said, chapter zero, you know, this is the, the prelude to, to a very, very complex and complicated topic. I think that can be the, the, the title for the show, complex and complicated. Uh, yeah. um, and we can keep building on this, you know, as, as new events and new, new information comes out and we can always pick out thematic elements and focus on particular areas to explore in more detail. And I'll probably do some homework in order to facilitate that as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I almost think it's good these days. Like I think people are kind of exhausted with the details in some regards. So it's almost better to like speak in broad strokes at this point in time. Um, Yeah. Maybe not all the time, but like, 
when you're talking about like kind of difficult things, maybe it's good to just take this kind of tone with it, you know, catch my drift. It would be cool to get into some details, you know, as much as uh, we just kind of like breezed over your experiences and your, your work. And I know there's a lot more of you got insights, you've got, you've got interesting, you know, interesting points of view. You're a smart motherfucker. I know you're smarter than I am. Like, <laughs> so it's, you know, I appreciate you coming on, man. Like it, not just anybody would do this for nothing, you know, two and a half hours, like given your time, I, I, I really do appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. And I'm definitely not smarter than you. We, we have our different areas of expertise. You know, if <laughs> you know, start man. talking about gardening, you're pretty gonna... clever. You're pretty clever. I'll <laughs> just say that you, you studied yeah, a lot I mean, harder than I did. I think you're smarter in that regard, you know? <laughs> yeah, I did study very hard. No doubt about that. Uh, but that don't mean shit. You got a hell of a lot more discipline. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll share this as a parting note, uh, since we discussed education and I didn't really get a chance to, to share this. Um, and I think a lot of your listeners may agree with this and, and feel similarly. So I would encourage you guys to YouTube, uh, a conversation between Jordan Peterson and uh, a North Korean defector, uh, by the name of Yeonmi Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, this lady is very young. And she has just finished her undergrad, but she did eight years of undergrad. So I'm guessing she's in her mid-20s. Um, she wrote a book recently called In Order to Live. And the conversation revolves around that. And it talks about her struggles to get out of North Korea, uh, her whole journey following uh, the time she got to the US where she went through China, South Korea, and she spent years there, so it's, it's flushed out in quite a bit of detail, and how her engagement with the education system in these different countries shaped her, shaped her thinking, and of course, she had to rewrite her thinking because she came from North Korea, mm. and then her experiences at Columbia in New York, and it really paints a very powerful image of what is wrong with education today in America and in, in, in Western society in general. I would highly encourage people to give that a listen. It's about 45 minutes long, if I'm not wrong. And you'd wish by the end of it that it went on for longer. True. Very, I, listened, very I listened to that too. It was, it was incredible. Um, yeah. And I think the gist of the problem is often like that these kind of conversations are no longer tolerated. Um, I mean, I don't know if we said anything here that would have been on the, on the sort of naughty list of current university policies and stuff usually it's more focused in like the whatever um gender discussion stuff that seems to be the the big sticking point or whatever right now which it's like i don't understand why um but it is strange in that like open discourse is not really very accepted it doesn't seem like because i remember in her conversation with jordan peterson there yeah she was talking about how like she would kind of be the only person in class to kind of stand up and say, um, like, I don't think so. Like, can we talk more about this here? Like, I don't think that's right because of her unique experiences. Right. And, um, sort and of also some- culture, right. I mean, yeah. she had just learned English. I think the, the context was that, uh, people were, uh, professors were asking her to use singular pl- pronouns or, or third person neutral pronouns. And, mm. Uh, in mo- and for our listeners, most Asian languages don't have that. We don't, don't have, have a, a concept of he and she, mm. right? 
What we have instead is a you for people our age, our peers, and a different you for people who are older than us that we want to give respect to. So right. in Hindi, Formal. for example, yeah. I would call Michael Tu. But if I was speaking with Michael's parents, I would call them up. Hmm. Right? So there's that, that, that change and that, that difference. So for someone who's just come to America, who has a, a, a basic understanding and grasp of, of English, I mean, to the extent that she's studying at fucking Columbia. Mm-hmm. So of course, it's not as basic as we, as we think. Yeah, pretty, um, yeah. yeah I'm pretty, pretty intelligent, basic English that she right. can actually operate in. Uh, sure. And for her to then say that, look, this is a bit challenging for me because this, this is my background and English is new to me. Uh, how do you reconcile that? And to be told that you are talking like someone who you, you, you're saying that because you're brainwashed, mm. where's the sensitivity in that? Mm. You know, how do you fit culture into that? Something that education campuses are preaching out of their fucking ass. Yeah, where did your yeah. culture go then? Right. I mean, to me, that was shocking, right? We should be cherishing people like this and making an example out of them. This is what human beings are about. This is the strength. And I mean, there's so much background to her story, you know, her, her younger sister, her dad being in, in a concentration camp, uh, her being in a very, very abusive relationship. I mean, mm-hmm. the, 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 the dichotomy of her relationship in China was, was one of the, the, the toughest things to read about in her book, right? Because so she's in a relationship. Too, huh? Yeah, because uh, I mean, I had to after that conversation, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. there's a chapter in which he spends time with a Chinese farmer in the middle of nowhere, essentially. And she's there with her mother, right? Mm. And her mother is very sick at that time. So this gentleman is taking care of her and her mother, but also sexually abusing her, right? And he's also promised her and is actively trying to bring her dad and her sister from North Korea. And eventually he does. She gets to see him before he passes away, I think, if I remember correctly. Imagine being in that position, right? And then, and then coming to America, land of the free, home of the brave, only to be told you're thinking like this because you're brainwashed. Because you're brainwashed. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, just sit down and listen to the approved, you know, the approved curriculum, right? It's like, yes. yeah, man, not a lot of like free thought in the universities. It's very much yeah. like, this is what we're doing. And if you don't like it, sit down, shut up, you know. It's like, I don't know if you heard all about IU, you know, IU is one of the first schools to make a vaccine mandate. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's, to me, it's silly because, you know, they had a bunch of parents basically show up in protest. So the compromise they come up with is if I'm not mistaken, they basically said, well, we're not going to remove the mandate, but we're also not going to ask for any proof. That means nothing. So what is that exactly teaching yeah. the, the students, right? What is that? What example is that setting? Like it's just virtue signaling. It's virtue signaling that it's a rule that, that is just there for, you know, for the image of having the rule, but they don't, you know, it's like wink, wink. We don't actually care about you or whether or not you're vaccinated. This is strictly it, it to look good. Such a bad example for young, for young kids, because it tells you that we, preach values but we don't really do anything about them we don't even actually like believe it you know it just seems very like yeah very sad you know very sad and um 
it's like it all makes don't me go to college kids go to college <laughs> go like, to trade educate school yourself go to yeah, trade educate school. yourself yeah, yeah. and it's go- very important to know why you're going for education yeah. right even if it's to a fancy college or a big college go there not a problem but please know why you're doing this don't do it for a job get a job mm-hmm. instead right and you'll find out soon enough what you want to study what are your true area of interests are but to spend four or five years at an expensive school and then to have that hanging over you and being stuck at something that you're just sort of going through the motions with it's it, it doesn't solve anything kids i mean like you said if you really know what you're what you're trying to do and that you know going to university is the is the proper way to do that go right ahead but this like go by default thing you know it's crazy it's crazy all all kids should go to college my ass like you know we're gonna be sorry when an electrician costs twice as much as your doctor you know like we need people they already cost 10 times as much as india for a reason (laughs) right (laughs) yeah i mean we need tradesmen though we need you know there's good money in a lot of different fields where not enough people are becoming apprentices so i fully agree um you know, I was working on a project here in India uh, before I left this gig because I'm because I'm moving now. Um, but it's, it was very interesting. I mean, very different than what I was doing in the, in the States. But essentially, I was working as a consultant for a network of universities here in Delhi that are all, all based in the dual education model. So they're 60-40 split as and in universities in India. Home, are- home versus in school or what do you mean 60-40? So 60% practical, 40% educational. I see. Classroom, classroom versus like hands-on. Right. And okay. uh, they started at 60-40, but now they're at 70-30 with the aim of eventually reaching 80-20. And depending on progress, you know, they may keep going in that direction or less and less, less and less classroom time. Is that the right, idea? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, if, if things, if the data points otherwise, then they'll probably bring it back to 70-30 or 60-40, you know, depending on what is, whatever is the, the need of the hour. Mm-hmm. But it's based on essentially the German and the Swiss model. Mm. And, and that's why they brought it here. Of course, India has its own sets of challenges, uh, which, which make this hard. But some of the results we've seen so far are incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, education in India is anyway is not very expensive, so that's a that's a huge incentive for for kids to go to school. Plus, uh, there is that familial sort of pressure as well to to educate yourself, mm-hmm. which I think is is almost a privilege in a lot of ways. Sure, right? Um, but the effects of that that we're seeing now, and and the innovation coming out of that is remarkable. You know, we have industry linkages where because these kids have to go uh, have hands-on experience, we need people in industries, right? Mm-hmm. To, to allow them to learn and, and make mistakes. And, and it's a great pipeline for talent for them because attrition is very high, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly for, for professions who are vocationally trained. So this helps them to keep identifying people and, and have a steady pipeline in case people are leaving. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, for the good candidates, they can just absorb them. And that's placement for universities. So it's, it's a win-win situation. And there, there have been some recent innovations that, that these kids have come up with. I know these are isolated incidents, but every drop makes an ocean, right? And this is a small network of six universities handling about 5,000 kids. Hmm. So it, it is supposed to be small. You know, it's a pilot study at this point. It started with one. Now they've grown to five. 
And progressively, they've shown better results, not just academically, but also in terms of placements and, and theoretical application and uh, practical applications. Sure. And now some of the bigger schools are coming to uh, are willing to come on board. We got some huge players in industry, in manufacturing, in automotive, uh, even in arts, you know, because there's a lot of folk art that is now being lost. So there are certain organizations that want to keep it alive, whether it's manuscripting, right, or it's performance art. Mm-hmm. You know, India as a cultural um, beast wants to hold all those things. We don't want to get rid of those. So we brought in those guys as well. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about like, I mean, you didn't see high school here in America, but um, I'm sure you could imagine it. You've, for that. you've seen enough movies and whatnot, yeah. but it's like, I can't, I was scandalized. That. Jesus Christ. Some of the hazing that went on. I would. Yeah. Not I, I remember, I remember, remember how funny we thought it was, how disturbing you, you found dazed and confused. Of yeah, all movies, it's because uh, <laughs> like yeah, because of the bullying and the hazing, and yeah, um, and it you know it's true that can that's that I it was interesting to have you in the room and be like this is fucked up because we're just like desensitized to it. Yeah, and you but agreed, like, but you guys laughed it off. <laughs> but we're like whatever, you know. Hey, it, everybody goes through it, you know. Ha ha. But uh, but no, and it's not as bad as it was like in the sixties and seventies, what they of were course. depicting. It's right. like, it's like, yeah, that's kind of how it used to be. It's not that way so much anymore. Um, but like my point was, um, you know, kids are getting out of high school at the age of 18. And just, I believe if you, if you look at it sort of objectively, the fact that, you know, why, why are we sending everybody to college or, you know, most kids to college? Well, it's because they they're not really qualified to do a whole lot at the age of 18. And why aren't they qualified at the age of 18? They've been in school for 12 fucking years. They're 18 fucking years old. They're fully mature adults or they should be. They ought to be. Yeah. They ought to be. So we are failing them somewhere along the line there. And I think a big part of it is the lack of hands-on experience mm. and, you know, it, the strict, you know, this is classroom learning, you know, this is how we do school. It's like, there are new models coming out that are very encouraging. I mean, Montessori is a big one, but like forest schools, uh, mm. you know, there's a lot of interesting new models, different homeschool curriculums and like ways of organizing collective homeschool groups. So you have multiple kids, you know, all this stuff, there's a million ways to skin this cat, but we're still like rigidly adhering to this fucked up system that really, you know, it, it basically leaves kids with trauma and like programming um, to, to be blindly allegiant to the state. Right. You know, every day we said, pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, like government schools are not actually designed to give you qualified job candidates. It's, it's really still, I believe geared towards basically churning out passive consumers and obedient citizens. Mm. You know, like we are taught a small select version of U S history a lot of the shit that we should know about, we don't get taught in school. And it's really, I mean, 
like you said, I don't know. There's there's a lot of improvement that could be done both in universities and in sort of primary school, you might call it. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I don't have much hope that the government's going to fix that one. Truthfully, I really don't. Public schools, like I just, you get occasional like shining examples, but even there, they're like not that great. You know what I mean? And I'm, I'm uh, afraid to report it's the same here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I went to a really good school as I'm, I imagine you did too. Really mm. well, you know, high rated high school. And uh, I still, I still thought most of it was kind of like bullshit, man. You know, like you, I know you get that teenage angst or whatever, but I think it's justified when you have to spend eight hours a day being treated like a child at the age of 18, instead of like being allowed to sort of get out and learn things in the real fucking world. Right. And explore. Yeah. How important is that to, to really find what you're good at? Cause let's be honest, in order to do well and be happy and, you know, really succeed, right. You need to be doing something that you enjoy. Yeah. And you need you to like be good see at other stuff. You need to see someone else doing it first, oftentimes to know it, yeah. you know, it even exists or that you right. have a passion for it. You know, I think by the time you turn, you know, 15 or 16, you should pretty much not have to go to a building for school anymore. I think you should be mm -hmm. able to do work away programs and like online schooling. I mean, a lot of kids want the social environment and stuff. Well, you know, we can figure that out in some way, but. Well, if I you're just, doing an apprenticeship and if you're in a place other than a building, which is for school, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a company or if, if you're shadowing someone, you know, small business owner or working on a farm, you'll still have that social connection, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's probably healthier for you that you're not seeing the same people every day. And you're not being, you know, sort of compulsor or, uh, I don't know, coerced to seeing those people. Like you're basically, you have no choice. You have to come yeah. to this building. This is what your district is. You know, if your parents can't afford to send you to a different school, this is the one you get. And um, yeah, the bullying thing is real. You know, the, the, there are distinct similarities between prison and government schools in the way that the populations behave at a fundamental mm. level. Clicks. Except, except I've heard the food at pri in prisons is better. Is better. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's like clicks are the same thing as gangs. Like, bullies right. are like the the big motherfucker in the shower that you know makes everybody his bitch right it's not right. a pleasant image but it's the same dynamics and it's like we're yeah. subjecting our kids to what is essentially a prison a life in prison for eight hours a day mm -hmm. five days a week 12 years of their existence and they're only trying to get more years you know like government sponsored um you know pre-k and like preschool and shit they want your kids starting at the age of three years old now you know and mm. it's like it's because people are so willing to get the free you know the free child care mm. it's sad it's sad that we're just like kind of letting it happen that way like oh well i gotta get to work so i guess i'll let I guess I'll let the government take care of my kid for eight hours, you know, every day. And I'll take no responsibility for what they're learning and like, and encouraging them to learn more. It's like, Oh, I just assume the school has it. Yeah. You know? It's dangerous. 
and it's really dangerous. Yeah. And specifically letting the school educate your kids about sex instead of taking responsibility for that yourself, mm. I think is fucked up. I think a lot of parents kind of do that on accident because they're like, well, you, you know, the kid went through sex ed, you know, the school took care of it. You know, I'll have the, the, the talk with them, but like th- there is no sort of real open dialogue between uh, parents and kids on the issue of sex. And I assume at one point in our human history, we did talk about that. We, cause you had to explain that to your children at some point, there was no teacher to do it for you. So we've just gotten so awkward about it that like we, we abdicate that responsibility like every other to the government. And it's like, it's yeah. no wonder teenagers are getting pregnant. And, you know, it's like, maybe we should have told them instead of like, assuming the school did a good job with it. I, you know, this is a whole nother topic or whatever, but uh, yeah, there's a lot yeah, of problems I, I, to also, me with, with, with just with government schools in general. I, I think no. it'll never be a good system no matter what they try to do. You know, I also suspect and cannot help but imagine that a lot of the mental health issues that are, that are surfacing now, mm-hmm. right. Is because of this cookie cutter approach. One size that fits all. Not, yeah, that it, it just, it stifles creativity. It stifles expression. It's trying to fit right? everybody into a square hole, even if they're, you know, a triangle or a circle or a ellipsis or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. It's like, and it, yeah. it's, it becomes diagnostic then. Yeah, man. Right. Which, which to me is, I don't want to call it a waste, but I feel that Kids are malleable, right? Brains are developing, bodies are developing. And if there are issues that are surfacing, you don't have to go in there and just fix that. Mm -hmm. You can develop other parts of them Mm -hmm. that become so strong and powerful and independent that the issues automatically go down or as, as a consequence, or because of that strength that you have created for them to have this, the capacity on their own to deal with these issues without having to go through through, look, therapy is not easy, right? Especially for kids. Putting mm-hmm. them on medication is worse, mm-hmm. right? So why not build instead of having to take a take a you know a layer of brick down mm-hmm. and then re- relining it with cement? Let's build a foundation. Let's continue building on this side so that this maybe weak part of the structure is held by the rest of it all. And that becomes the core strength, right? And through, through exposure, through other experiences, through their, through their engagement with other areas, and I mean that physically and metaphorically, mm. that could be a great balancing act. We're missing out on a trick here. We're not understanding the data correctly. We're, we're going into diagnostic mode. We're going into giving advice mode, which is the default mode for human beings. We're not listening to the data. We're not empathetical to the data. You know, I was thinking about how this is a lot like what we were talking about with shedding opinions, right? Sort of being willing to change our mind and, and, and move on from what we maybe previously held to be true, depending on the circumstance or what have you. It's like this, this rigid holding on to what is and what has been in terms of high schools, in terms of colleges, you know, it's like, well, it, it worked okay for this long. Like 
we can't change it too much. You know, it's worked okay. It's worked okay. Like, no, we need to shed that opinion. Like, it's not working. Not just that it's not working well. It's like, it's just not really working. You know, yeah, kids are learning their ABCs, but you're essentially wasting many years of their life with a lot of, a lot of really kind of redundant and unnecessary sort of programming is really what it is. It's, it, you could hardly make the argument that it's education, much of it. Much of it is training, not education. And um, so, yeah, that's a big heart. That's a hard one, man. Like public schools, you know, nine out of 10 people, you ask them with a microphone, you know, and you're doing a survey. It's like, do you think we should give more money or less money to public schools? Nine out of 10 are going to say more. <laughs> it's like, nah, man, fucking take all that money away. Zero funding, figure it out, y'all. Like, educate your own fucking kids. You know, I'm dead. I'm dead serious. Like, you know, how about you get a you get a refund check from your taxes that they're charging, so that you can, you know, right? Like, each kid gets a voucher, right? And each kid gets ten grand that the parent can apply towards whatever form of education they choose. You know, that would be the um, that would be the charter school model. It's not the anarchist mm. model, but it's at least a happy compromise. If they're going to take property taxes for education, at least give motherfuckers the freedom to choose how that money gets spent and where their kid gets to go. You know, that at least has I, some, I remember of, of choice. I, I remember when I came to the U S one of the first things that I found completely baffling was education, hmm. you know, not, not university, but, but high school education, just because of the way it's, the system is built, right? I mean, when I learned that, you know, okay, you have schooling districts, the higher you pay, the better the school is. And people move to the better schooling districts, even if it means getting a smaller house and mm. getting a less fancy car, just because they can put their kids in that school. And of course, they pay taxes to then facilitate that. And I just remember thinking that it's the system is completely skewed, right? How much money you have basically dictates and this is for public schools. This isn't, this isn't even for, for private schools. And I mean, I always thought schooling was how it is, it is in India, you know, that, okay, every school has an application. You, you put that in and depending on merit. And of course, there's, there's some pushing and pulling that, that people do if they have connections. But largely speaking, they're, they're fewer in number and they're uh, a dent in the, in the full market. Um, and you, it's impossible to weed out, you know, such, such anomalies, if you will, but we can help. And I remember thinking that this makes no sense, you know, like the system is, is deliberately framed in a way where it's not just trying to prioritize certain people, but it's also trying to reduct the possibility of growth or certain people. And when you then start transposing other factors, you know, whether that's race or, or other things, it becomes even disturbing, even more disturbing than that. So, I mean, that's a whole different area to get into, but I think the systematic issue with, with schools is so deep and it's beyond just education, mm. you know, it, it goes into economic politics. It goes into racial politics. It goes into developmental politics now it's probably going into mental health politics because the richer the school, the better mental health they can offer, right? Mm. Uh, when I say better, I mean just more resources. That doesn't necessarily mean better. Well, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, big pharma's probably got their finger on the scale too because the more kids they can pump full of 
you know, like uh, psychotropic drugs is, you know, that's a win for them. You know, they love being able to prescribe little Johnny on Adderall because then he never is going to know anything else, you know, and I've come to actually have more and more like I used to really be against like prescribing, you know, if not that I have any place to disagree with it, but it's like I was always hesitant to to accept like ADHD and like drugs associated with it as a good thing. I think when you're a consenting adult, you have every right to sort of discuss what you think is best with your doctor. And I've, I've come to understand the benefits and drawbacks of these kind of drugs from friends, personal experiences. And um, so it's like, I am all for people having the ability to, to do that and to treat these symptoms of ADHD. But I, the fact that so many kids are getting zombified at a young age when their brains aren't developed even remotely. And it's just the square peg round hole thing. It's like, sit still, Johnny, you know, this school needs you to comply instead of like, maybe there's a better alternative uh, environment for this child to learn in it's, we got to make the kid fit the environment. So, you know, <sighs> could go on for hours about public schools. You know, we call them government schools in the, in the Liberty movement, you know, cause public doesn't quite give the same, it doesn't have the same ring to it. Punch. These, yeah. these kids are going to government schools. We are allowing the government to educate our kids. And, you know, I think the propaganda thing is real. I think the, um, the blind patriotism element is like very much pushed. And I think blind patriotism is dangerous, you know, like, so homeschool your kids, you know, <laughs> I think that's honestly, you know, being in like a homeschool group, like I said, probably what I would do if I, you know, if, and when I have kids, that's what I'll strive to do. I know it's not always easy though. You know, can't, yeah. I, I wouldn't even say homeschool your kids. I'd say give the kids the edge, give your kids the education that you think will serve them best. That makes most you know? sense for them individually. Yeah. yeah. You're serve right. Your You're kids. right. Yeah. 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 You know? If your kid Up wants to go adults, yeah. You've got to serve your kids from an education standpoint, whether mm -hmm. it's, whether it's teaching them how to, how to do stuff around the, the garage, right. Whether it's helping your kids cook, mm -hmm. teaching them those skills, you know, no doubt. Uh, yeah. uh, whether it's finance, how to manage your bank account, get your kid a bank account at the age of 10. If sure. you can, if, if you're a state or if, if the jurisdiction you live in allows that give them 20, 30 bucks a week or how much ever you can afford, ask them to manage it, sit down on, every second or third weekend with them and see balance, you know, the, you know balance the books. Yeah. yeah, yeah understand, yeah. make them understand how, how money is spent, what is saved, teach them to save, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, don't work on credit as much as people want you to. Yeah, yeah, no yeah. one cares about a good credit score. If you have savings, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's better to have the cash. Yeah. Yeah. Teach no them those skills. Right. And, and then let them explore around with those you know, learn from your kids, see what they're spending money on, see what they're cooking, see what, what attracts them in a, in a, in a garage or indeed when they're gardening, mm -hmm. empower them in that direction and they'll do well. At least they'll develop well. Everything else just follows, you know, and yeah. maybe then get them ready for school. If they want to go to a fancy school or a fancy university or, or even a prep school or a vocational school or a community college, you know, you've given them the skills they need to not find themselves in debt, perhaps. Yeah. Right. Or at least not waste away that money. 
tell you, if, you know, it's like if your kid's 18 and um, you hear all the time about it's like these millennials, you know, you put a hammer in their hand. The only thing they know how to do is smash their finger. So, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of them, to be honest. Yeah, well, and that, you know, I mean, that's just like a, it's a stupid example, but sort of like the illustration is is there that so often 18 year old kids have very little common sense and very little like usable skill life it's skills, like, yeah. at that point like yeah even if you did go to school like the general like you know conventional school system like you had a few years there to like get get a job and like maybe gain some skills even if it's just customer service or what have you but you know it's like i don't think that's happening all the time and I'm almost embarrassed looking back at how inept I was at the age of 18. And you think about like human beings of days gone by that had probably slain like six mammoths by the time they had their 18th birthday. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm being a little ridiculous, but it's like, I, I fully then you believe. met me and you're like, okay, I'm still better off than some people. <laughs> <laughs> this motherfucker can't even open a juice box. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Hey, it's not a juice box. It's a Capri Sun. Yeah. 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 I had to, I had to poke the straw for him the first couple of times. <laughs> Poor yeah, guy. Then I found Caleb who did it for me every time. <laughs> I almost burnt your house down once. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, what, when you came over for Thanksgiving or what, what time? I think it was Thanksgiving when I was trying to operate the tr- the toaster. My friend or my my uh, parents. Your house? parents' house, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad you didn't do that, man. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, shit, bro. I feel like as usual, we could just go on and on and on, but maybe maybe we ought to wrap her up and uh, you know we'll turn off the recording. I'm gonna grab a beer. I don't know if you want to like just chill for one more minute off off the air. That, that'd be cool. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming. And, you know, we'll do it again for sure. Yeah, this was a blast. I'll, I'll keep my goodbye short since I've already done that a few minutes ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. About half an thank hour. Thank you very minutes. much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a delight. And I'm yeah. sure we'll do this more often. No doubt. All right, buddy. This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again. <laughs>